TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who always throws Zachary Quinto in my face when I have a hard time accepting change. My co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Andy will be joining Dan and myself to review this week's Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be there for the rest of the show as we are back to reviewing a full schedule of our favorite shows, including Game of Thrones, Castle, Psych, Supernatural, and the finales of both Community and Person of Interest. Also, we'll review Big Bang Theory and Doctor Who. We will also round things out with another Airways Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on Simpsons, Family Guy, How I Met Your Mother, Revolution, Defiance, Arrow, and Grimm, but much, much more. If you can handle all of that. But before we get into that, we've got a lot of big renewal news with our News with Nico section for this week. Indeed, there were a lot of shows picked up this week and lots of cancellations, way too many to cover here, but we'll mention the ones that are important to ATA that I could find right now. Go On, cancelled by NBC. NBC has cancelled the Matthew Perry sitcom Go On. The Matthew Perry series debuted strong in the fall, but collapsed without the voice as a lead-in throughout the winter. Community has been renewed for season 5. Class will continue to be in session at Greendale. NBC has renewed Community for season 5 in what was kind of a surprising move. What a good one. I'm oh, happy. definitely a good one. Defiance was renewed for season 2 already. Sci-Fi have renewed Defiance for season 2 after airing 4 episodes of the new series and its heavy tie-in to the simultaneous launched Defiance game, which has performed well for Sci-Fi, winning its time period among adults 18 to 49 and adults 25 to 54 and total viewers for three consecutive Mondays compared to other cable series. Season 2 will begin production in August for a 2014 debut and the show will continue to air on Mondays. Season 7 of Burn Notice will be the last. When Burn oh. Notice returns for Season 7 on June 6, it will be the beginning of the end. USA has announced that the spy show will conclude at the end of Season 7. And I think this is going to begin a trend of a lot of show endings for USA, I have a feeling. I think you might be right. Yeah. CBS cancels Vegas and Golden Boy. Going one season and done are Golden Boy and Vegas. Both series were kind of just there this season, getting middling reviews and ratings. It was initially rumored that they might be competing for one spot, but with CBS's solid drama development slate, neither ended up making the cut. Criminal Minds overcomes its contract standoff, officially gets renewed for season 9. Even though CBS renewed most of its current series back in March, the network hadn't re-upped on the procedural because it hadn't reached contract agreements with much of the cast. It has done so now, but if you want more information, check out our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Nickelodeon previews The Legend of Korra Book 2. The wait for new episodes of The Legend of Korra has been more difficult for fans than most shows since that show aired its 12 episodes with nearly no breaks last year, but has been gone for quite some time, over a full year now. 
Fans have the comfort of knowing there are still three more books to go in the series, but so far, we haven't been given a debut date for book two. That didn't change this week, as Nick could only say Korra would be back later this year. However, they made available a cool new scene from the upcoming episodes. Check it out in our ACC feed. I would say with that is Nickelodeon changed their order of the amount of episodes they wanted mm-hmm. for the second and third book. So I have a feeling they're trying to make up for that order, which is why it's taking so long. Yeah, good point. And also, they have so much faith in the series, they don't really care. Can I think by this point they should care because it's been almost over a year, hasn't it? It has. Yeah, and they are ramping up production, but I think it's going to be book two this year, book three next year, you know, book four the year after that. I would say it's an animation thing, to be honest. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Okay. G.I. Joe writers sue studio over stolen sequel. Such your stick. David Elliott and Paul Lovett co-writers of the 2009 G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra have filed a massive copyright infringement suit against Paramount, MGM, Hasbro, and producer Lorenzo D. Bonaventure. In their complaint, the writers claim that much of this year's G.I. Joe retaliation was stolen from their ideas. They're seeking $23 million in damages. Following the release of the first G.I. Joe in 2009, Elliot and Lovett were asked by the studios to present plot lines, themes, characters, and more for a potential sequel. Following that, the writer's work was allegedly incorporated into retaliation without giving them any credit. The complaint also goes into detail about how nearly every aspect of the Joe retaliation movie from the beginning to the end plagiarizes their work, offering side-by-side comparisons of the similarities. We'll see if this goes anywhere or if it is quietly settled out of court, which I think is going to happen. But we'll keep you updated. Well, and the other thing about that is it retaliation borrowed from a lot of things. God, there's some, you know, the G.I. Joe animated shows called the new one Renegades, and then they did an anime thing on Cartoon Network. That borrowed from it, too. So there's a lot of things that this story came from, not just their scripts. Right, but when you show their script, which probably borrowed from those things first, you show their script up against the script that was actually shot, and they allege that you can see exactly that they basically took the overall plot, took many of the key points, and then took it and had somebody else write the dialogue or whatever, but they took all their characters, their themes, their plot points, and everything, and didn't give them any credit, which is plagiarism. Right. Well, good luck with going up against Paramount, MGM, and Hashbro. Yeah. Because they're powerhouses. I think they have a very strong case. That's why it's making news. Yeah. Finally, and Andy will discuss this in detail in the coming weeks, but it's official, Joss Whedon and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. ordered to series by ABC. We all assumed it was a sure thing, but it's now official. ABC has picked up Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a series debuting this fall. Along the way, ABC cautioned they had not given the green light to the project beyond the pilot stage, but it would have been shocking if it hadn't been picked up, given all the factors involved. The massive success of Iron Man 3 only cemented the fact that a Marvel-centric TV series was a highly desirable commodity at this point. The first promo for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. will air this weekend during Sunday night's Once Upon a Time finale. And I'm kind of pumped to see that. I'm interested. Oh, yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah, I'm excited. And Iron Man 3, I thought, was a lot of fun. It's a good movie. We have some other people at the podcast who felt otherwise, and we're going to hash that out. Got a couple weeks on an Iron Man 3 discussion episode, which will be coming soon. And that's the news with Nico for this week.
All right. And with that, we're going to have Andy come in and join the party with Nico and I for our discussion on the Once Upon a Time episode, Second Star to the Right. Emma, Mary Margaret, and David go in search of Regina when they discover that she, along with some magic beans, have gone missing. But against Neil's protest, Emma still believes that Tamara had something to do with Regina's disappearance, and Mr. Gold contemplates telling Lacey the truth about his ability to conjure magic. Meanwhile, as Rumpelstiltskin abandons his son and lets him travel alone through a portal, Young Bay finds himself back in 19th century London and is taken in by the Darling family, befriending their daughter Wendy. Now, something that me and probably a lot of fans out there have been waiting for since the series began was the Once Upon a Time adaptation of the legendary P- Peter Pan. I love that we basically got everything from the classic Peter Pan mythos. We got Wendy, her brothers, we even got the dog, guys, and the parents, and all. And basically, if you th- thought about it, th- the bedroom that they, w- they were in, it was almost exactly the same design from the original Disney movie. And um, and then we also had the, the mystical shadow, which is supposedly t- is supposed to be Peter's, Peter Pan's shadow, but apparently Peter Pan still doesn't exist from what I understand. And I still believe that that the fear that Bay will become P- Peter Pan in the or it will be revealed as Peter Pan next week will still happen as I because I think the Shadow and Bay will basically become one when we see them next week and it was interesting to see how Bay got brought on on the ship by Captain Hook and Toyman I mean Smee he looks so much yes. alike as I, as I think the season finale will really make Hook a lot more interesting and better because let's say he's been kind of a pawn for the past couple of episodes so guys what did you think about the adaptation of the Peter Pan mythos in this episode. I had a hard time. I liked it all, Andy. I, I'm going along with you. what you said. I have a hard time viewing Wonder, uh, Neverland as a bad place because I always just thought it was this mystical fantasy world that was fun, like how Steven Spielberg portrayed it in the movie Hook. So seeing that was kind of difficult, but I'm thinking that what's going to happen is Bay's going to become Peter Pan by overcoming the shadow and kind of, I guess, making Neverland a better place, a place that those boys that were crying for their for their mother would actually enjoy that's what i think is going to happen but i'm not sure yeah i'm kind of on the same page with you dan i was thinking that somehow the shadow and peter or bay are going to merge and become peter or the peter that we know and that he will very much like you just said have an opportunity to fix neverland or to make it better and i think how that happens is that when they combine and become one character, they all the good that Bay is will counteract the I don't know if it's evil or the evil tendencies of the shadow. And that's why the classic Peter Pan is always either chasing his shadow, fighting his shadow, good naturely sword fighting with his shadow. And that might be the internal struggle of Bay and the shadow to do what is right and what needs to be done. And so that kind of jumps in with the whole Peter Pan mythos as well. I have a follow-up question to you guys, and it's something that I discussed with somebody off microphone early, earlier today. Do you guys believe that, do, do you guys think it's possible that, because we, we've seen Bay and his view on magic, you know, do you guys think he would be willing to, you know, accept a land for magic uh, somewhere in his life in, in, at that point in Neverland because we don't know, you know, we don't know what how long he's he has been there and then before he comes back to our to our reality 
and becomes Neil because that's a big question, like you know, in his character because he hates magic. And do you think he would basically make maybe find a good thing in magic while he's there, or maybe make magic better from than what it is right now? I think that has to do with the whole Tinkerbell thing, and I think yeah. when he meets Tinkerbell and sees that she is the epitome of good and she's magical that maybe he understands that magic isn't always evil it just corrupts some people and they turn evil or the power of it can turn evil but there are beings that can be magical and not corrupted by it so i think that since he's probably in neverland for a hundred years in our time that over that time he comes to understand that that magic is not always evil that yeah it probably comes with a price but that price is not always the person's soul or, or their goodness. So I, I think that that might be the case. Well, also, I think it's important that he does have what somewhat of an acceptance of magic so he can still have an attraction or interest in Emma because Emma is magic right. to a certain extent. So if he completely hated everything to do with magic, that would cause an interest, uh, an issue with their attraction towards each other. And again, that's not the case. So Agreed. I think you're right with where you're going there, Nico. If he sticks around, please stick around, but we'll <laughs> see. We'll see. Now, let's go to the next point, which is the horrible female dog known as Tamara, who caused some big bleep in this episode as Neil got shot. No, ladies and gentlemen, no, if you're just joining us, Neil has been shot by, from Mr. Annie this time and sent to supposedly Neverland. The really sad part about this home office trying to destroy Magic Storyline is that they have ca- cast two really weak actors who got not that good characters to play because they're not that yeah. well written, they're not that interesting as antagonists. And guys, I don't care what you think, but when Greg was digging for his father's body and discovered that he was dead, I was laughing. And enjoying his pain, and it was good. But other than that, it was a really good cliffhanger that they gave us that by showing that they have the self-destruct trigger that could destroy Storybrooke. The showdown between Emma and Tamara gave me a rush. Yes, people, cat fights and fights in general does that to me. Leave me alone. And I really thought that Neil and Emma would win, but no, Tamara had to pull a bean out of her sleeve. So, guys, what did you think about all of this? Well, they stopped sending people to other worlds. I am so sick of this. <laughs> It's it's disgusting. I mean, it's like once the show starts going somewhere, can they have a good connection between characters? Which I thought Neil and Emma's love story is. I think they're the two best characters on the show right now, along with Henry and their chemistry together. The three of them as a family is very interesting to watch. Got really great stuff. Got as soon as this show gets something together good, they warp somebody to another world. Got it really it really upsets me. And I'm really hoping that you know this shadow business. Got some of the theories we were throwing out there about Bay is how. Bay or Neil or whatever you want to call him comes back to our world. Like I feel like he feels if he falls through the portal it goes back to a world with magic somehow his connection with the shadow will come back and that will heal him from being shot and whatnot. And then he uses that to get back to Storybrooke because there has to be a way he got out of Neverland. Because if he could get out of Neverland I think he could find a way to get back from wherever he was sent to back to the real world Storybrooke. So that's my thought. Dan do you remember the story of Hook? (laughs) Come on, he's gonna he's gonna live yeah. hook. He's old Peter Pan returning to Neverland and needs to remember and learn how to fly again. And then he'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> so that's where I think that story is going. I actually well, when is that gonna happen? Is that gonna happen next season next or is season. he gonna Okay. It's gonna be next season. Now they had to make him and Emma separated because they okay. finally said I love you, which means something has to happen. Yeah. 
that's classic screenwriting, you know? On TV, it's too early. Unless they were going to end the series in the next episode, they need to keep Emma and Neil apart. Only because it's more compelling when they're fighting to get together and working towards getting together. And so they haven't really been together in this episode, and so we haven't gotten that final thing. This was one of those near misses that always happens in the first three or four seasons of a show until eventually in four or five they get together and everything's good and then they have to throw monkey wrenches in that to keep it going under the classical screenwriting that Dan and I always talk about every week. But I think they're going to be separated and then they're going to have to try and find a way to get back together. Much like in the beginning of this season, I know you guys didn't really like Emma and uh, Mary Margaret going back to the Enchanted Forest and back to that world. But that was exactly what they did with Henry and Emma in that early part. So I think we're going to see very similar story in the first half of season three with Neil trying to get back to his son and to his the love of his life, Emma. So I think that's where that's going to go. Now, Andy and I talked a little bit off air that I really actually am not that against the Tamara and Greg story. I actually am more interested in it. Yeah, it hasn't been all that Ed explained yet, and we don't know much of Tamara's backstory. We saw that one episode where she was hunting the Red Dragon, but we don't really know why she's brought into this home office story arc and hunting magic. I just don't know what that's all about yet. But the home office story and people who are anti-magic, fighting magic in the world and have previously eradicated magic from our world, that kind of really excites me and interests me. And so if it takes a little bit of time to get an understanding of what's going on here, I'm all for that because I find it very, very interesting and I'm looking forward to seeing what Tamara's backstory was. We know Greg's a little bit, but now we got to see where Greg goes now that his father's dead. So I'm I'm all in on this story. I'm not feeling like it's a low point in the storytelling of this uh, show. I'm more interested in the background than per se them as the characters. Okay. Like I, I'm all about the home office. I like this idea of a group trying to destroy magic. Um, it's just those two, Greg and Tamara, aren't interesting characters to me, I guess. And, and I feel like these are just this is just the beginning of what we're going to see from the home office as well okay. you know this is kind of the tip of the iceberg because i think we'll get better characters that will represent the home office and what they stand for as it goes on i think these two are just the first henchmen we're going to see out of several throughout the course of the show um, I, i'm viewing a lot the home office a lot like wolfram and Hart on angel <laughs> yes where they're going to have different agents and different work, people working for the home office come in and interact with storybrook yeah very but, much so but the one thing i I just want to say about this show because I feel like that they could keep characters apart and do that with drama and plotline stuff more so than having to put them in separate worlds all the time. I just don't want the show to be a representation of every time characters get close to each other or have a deep emotional moment that they automatically get separated by being sent to separate worlds. I, oh, I, I agree. Repetition thing. I agree, but I think the Neil and Emma one was so big that they needed something physical to keep them apart rather than just emotional or dramatic. I think that's why Neil and... Emma, it, it had to be this way, you know? It had to be this huge thing. Now, does anybody know that 
if the actor that's playing that plays Neil is going to be a regular cast member next season. Well, has there I, been news on that yet? They haven't. Well, the fact they haven't announced the renewal of season three is, you know, if they haven't announced that, then I don't think they would announce like, oh, we, we uh, Neil is going to be a series regular next year for a season we have not renewed yet, but. But we will we will see about that. But we have to move on uh, now so we don't run out of time. The last point was I, I absolutely loved that Snow used herself to find Regina as she is trying to redeem herself of what she did to Cora, even though we had to see her suffer when Regina was suffering. The method really was a good example of this all magic comes with a prize because, yeah. you know, most of the times it's, you know, comes with a prize later. But this time it was immediately. Like, once you use it, price so i thought that was a g- really good thing by the writers for this episode what did you guys think about it i agree i like yeah it. i agree with that um i think regina is going to have a really interesting role in next week's episode yep i think all of them are because it's... i think well i think she's going to surprise us next week and really do something good i think i think this is going to be another next step got her finding redemption i agree well let's go to some quick odds and ends and um when greg and tomorrow get tortured punished or killed for their actions i'm just going to enjoy every second of it because I'm just disgusted with the both of them and sorry listeners but for wanting to see these people suffer I guess the following has helped me a lot with that point so who knows and here's a crackpot fear that the la- as our last point before we had to wrap up do you guys think based on what we saw when Wendy came back from Neverland her you know how upset she was with the view that she got from there do you think she could perhaps be involved with the home office like think about it she lost one of her so called brothers thanks to magic and until we see the finale and whether they proceed with the mythology and also confirms my theory we won't know what it's going to be like but do you think it would make it would work as a twist yeah i like that i like that andy i like the idea that she's behind the home office my only counter to that is that after bay took over and became peter pan wouldn't that be when he goes back for wendy when he goes and takes her and brings her and shows her the land that he has created the neverland that we see in the stories and gets her and her brothers to help fight Captain Hook. So wouldn't she have come back and seen the good that that magic has done and how it has changed Neverland? Hmm. Or they could That's... just hire Maggie Smith to play an old version of Wendy that runs the home office, right? Let's not destroy the budget more than it needs to because she would basically cost them a lot of money. Yes, but oh, I love Maggie Smith. Who doesn't love Maggie Smith? She put, come on, she was the girl in Harry Potter, yo. But that's all we have to say about yeah. this episode. A great penultimate episode before the season finale. So that's all for this week's discussion about Once Upon a Time. Tune in for the season finale call and straight on till morning. This upcoming Sunday, 8, 7 Central on ABC. All right. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. Great section. Great discussion. Can't wait to talk with you more about the finale. God, next week. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to talking about a Game of Thrones episode that seemed to uh, not cover as many storylines this week, but kept things interesting as always. And again, it was a lot of fun to watch. So let's talk about the Game of Thrones episode, which had a breathtaking mountain wall climbing scene in the episode. It's pretty cool. So let's talk about the Game of Thrones episode, The Climb.
Rob considers a compromise to mend his alliance with House Frey. Melisandre visits the Rivlerians. Tyron plans strategic unions for the Lannisters. Jamie's fate is in Roose Bolton's hands. John prepares for a dangerous climb with the Wildlings. Well, we're going to begin our discussion with uh, this week's Game of Thrones, Beyond the Wall, with Sam and Jilly, moving towards Castle Black, away from the carnage that they left behind at Craster's Camp. And with this thing, Gilly telling Sam that he needed to let the fire he was building breathe quickly established her. Because what I thought was the braids behind this operation was Sam kind of acting as the brawn. In other words, this was a dynamic I enjoyed between Sam and Gilly because it just shows the talent of George R.R. R. Martin as a storyteller as, you know, he was able to establish three very different guy-girl traveling companion pairings that are all very different from each other, with Sam and Gilly making up for each other's weaknesses. Jon Snow and Ygritte being a forbidden love, and Jamie and Brienne kind of having a mutual warrior's respect for one another. Nico, am I correct on the observation that in their relationship, Gilly acts as the brains while Sam acts as the brawn? Also, do you agree with me on the perception this story has done a good job of establishing guy-girl traveling companion pairings that are all uniquely and interestingly different from each other? On the first part, not really, Dan. It's more like Sam is the book smarts while Gilly is the street smarts or common sense smarts in survival. Much okay. like the scene told us, Sam was highborn and thus never really learned survival skills because he was not a very masculine boy. Which is why his father forced him to join the Night's Watch in the first place when his younger brother proved to be more of a man's man and the son his father always wanted. Thus Sam gave up his claim to his father's land and money, which he only did because his father told him that if he did not, that he'd have him killed and made to look like an accident. Basically, Sam's problem in his father's eyes was that he spent too much time inside with his nose in a book and not enough time being brave and doing manly things. He was essentially a nerd, but his cowardice was what his father hated. As for your second part, you are absolutely correct that Martin has created these three guy-girl traveling companion stories very well, and each in is different from the others. There is a forbidden love story, the honorable knights in their quest towards mutual respect, and there is the courageous coward protecting the mother and her newborn, who he might or might not be in love with. All different, yet still all have similar elements as well. Really, all three of these stories will have excellent payoffs going forward. So you're that's right. what I figured. Yeah, you're right to point them out and, and show how great this development is because it is. These are three great stories that are going to have good payoffs, I think, this season. Yeah, and with Sam, the situation that he's in right now, there's not really an opportunity to see a lot of his book smarts. Right. At least from the quick scene we saw. So that's kind of why I went with Broad, but I think you're more right with what you're saying about this, about the relationship. I agree with that. Okay. So better way of phrasing it, I think. Going into the woods south of the wall, we catch up with Bran, who gets quite creeped out when a sleeping Joan begins to have what looks like a seizure, which his sister explains as a side effect of his visions. Kaniko, the question I have for you here on this one is, is Bran going to become reluctant about developing his warg abilities or understanding the meanings behind his dreams and fear of having seizures? In addition, what was up with the arguing between Asha and Mera? Is this because Asha is jealous of her or does this have something to do with her superstition regarding Bran's dreams? Yeah, Bran may become wary of the seizure side effects, but he also knows that his visions are what are leading the group right now. Okay. It's it's not actually the warg ability that causes the seizures, rather it's the vision ability. 
So they're separate from each other? Yeah. Okay. Since Bran has both of these abilities, he may be stronger than Jojen and not affected by the side effects as strongly. We've seen Bran have his visions while he sleeps and has never had a seizure yet as a result. So I'd suspect that that has something to do with it, that Bran is stronger in his abilities. Though not as practiced as Jojen for sure. I don't know for sure because they don't or haven't addressed this to this point in the books where I'm I'm at. Now, switching gears, as for the Mira and Osha argument or apparent jealousy or whatever, their struggle in this episode, that's more of a power struggle to see who's in charge. Obviously, okay. Bran is the lord and is the ultimate boss, but they are determining the pecking order and seeing who is sort of second in command. Obviously, both have their skills and assets they bring to the team, but they are both independent and strong women that don't like being ordered around by another independent and strong woman. As I spoiled slash hinted at earlier in the books, they eventually go their separate ways. So this may be the way in which they explain that aspect of the book. God, the other idea is, is Bran almost being stronger or not being affected by the seizures. The kind of idea, you know, with people that are disabled, like blind people, for instance, their senses are heightened because they don't have eyesight because because he doesn't have the use of his legs anymore. The same kind of situation. I'm not going to say no because they don't address it. Okay. But I don't think it's that. I think it's just that he it runs stronger in his family or he is it just right. natural ability. It's like the difference between the Jedi, some were much stronger and able to control the force much more easily and others had to struggle at it, but ultimately still became powerful or still became useful Jedi. So I, I like your use of the words can run strongly in his family. Yeah, that's awesome. Just going to say. Star Wars geek out there. But anyway, God, somewhere near Winterfell, God, Theod continues to get tortured. God, I'm really getting tortured by this plot line. Continuing. Because every time this story starts to get some development, like Theod figuring out the boy who's torturing him is Richard Karstark's son, which kind of would have fit what happened last week. We end up going back to square one by the boy telling Theod it's all a lie. I mean, I get that HBO decided to keep the character of Theod on the show for contractual reasons or the buzz on the internet about him being a character that people loved in the first season, got hated in the second. But George R.R. R. Martin was probably right to leave Theod out into the fifth book because this plotline really is going nowhere to me. Nico, do you still continue to agree with me on this notion? Yeah, but at the same time, this torture scene was interesting in its execution because we thought we might actually be getting somewhere just for them to then slam it shut by saying it was all a lie yeah i'm really looking forward to our upcoming hiatus from ata so that i can finally finish book five and know exactly where the hell this story is supposed to be going <laughs> because it truly is the only thing i have no idea about at this point yeah they've made some changes in in between the book and the show but still i have a general idea of where those storylines are going in this case, I have no idea, and that maybe is why it's not sitting so well with me, but it also just might be that the Theon character is not one of my favorites. Nico has a blind spot, and he doesn't like it. <laughs> he needs to do something about it. Indeed. Yeah. Well, we'll see where that goes. It may make all, all make sense to us, like all the other plot lines on the show. Yeah, you're right. And surprise us, so we'll see. We'll see. 
Meanwhile, with the Brotherhood, things continue to expand with the point you made last week, Nico, about characters worshipping religions, guys in the Lord of Light differently, guys the quote-unquote good Brotherhood actually had dealings with Melisandre, the evil sorceress trying to corrupt Stannis' people. But I guess the one thing they do have in common is money talks, because the Brotherhood sells Gendry to Melisandre so she could probably turn him over to the Lannisters as a means of hiding from Stannis that his brother does have an heir to the throne. However, the most interesting part of the Brotherhood's scenes this week was when Arya got in Melisandre's face, calling her the well-deserved name of a witch. But her comeback of telling Arya she has darkness inside of her makes me wonder if she's on her way towards growing up to become one of the villains of this story. Do you think this is the case, Nico? Or is this Melisandre possibly seeing Arya as someone who may kill her in the future to save Jedry or for another cause? Also, Nico, am I going down the right path Come my prediction about Melisandre's plan for Jedry? I think the outcome of this story is going to be Arya proving to him that they truly are family. So what's your deal with all of that? So, Dan, this story about Melisandre meeting up with the Brotherhood without banners never happened in the book, or at least it never happened in book three or four. In the books, there is a bastard of Roberts being held slash protected at another castle that they go and try and get. Melisandre tells Stannis that he needs to sacrifice the blood of the king or his brother, Robert, to the one true lord of light, and that will help him on his quest to defeat the Dark One. I think that's what they call him, which has not yet been discussed in the show, but is the White Walker's either leader or god. I'm a little fuzzy on that detail. Okay. Anyway, Stannis struggles with the idea of killing this innocent bastard of Robert, and the Onion Knight story revolves around that decision. So So that's coming, I take it. I think so. I think that will be what they do with the Genry character. I'm wondering if they're going to use the Genry character instead in this story rather than introduce another new bastard. Now, is Genry in the books? Yes. Okay. Yes, he is. Also, just a little clarification. Bastards are not able to inherit their father's land or money. So Jenry could not be the rightful heir. Okay. Because you asked about, you know, her selling them to the Lannisters to hide from Stannis that there is a legitimate heir. Jenry would not be a legitimate heir. Okay. The danger of these bastards, rather, is that they will prove that all of Robert's spaceborn children are brown-haired and the king and his brother and sister have blonde hair because, of course, we know they are the products of Jamie and Cersei's incest. But this would prove since all of his baseborn children come out with brown hair, that there was something fishy about the real or his legitimate children. As for the Arya Melisandre showdown, once again, this was not in the book, so I'm not sure what this was all about and probably had to do with something that comes back in book five that I'm not aware of yet. I'd like to think that Arya and Melisandre have a showdown later in the series, but I just don't know. So your guess is as good as mine at this point, Dan. I, I like how they're faking you out, Nico. This is kind of fun. Well, I mean, they, they had yeah. to make changes. They had to, yeah. you know, otherwise there would be a thousand cast members. And right. you just can't deal with all of that. You can do it in books, but in a show, it's just not feasible. So they do combine some characters. Some of the characters get left out because when Arya and Hot Pie and Gendry were traveling together, there were actually others that left with them. So, you know, eventually you do get some whittling down of characters or combination of characters. Essentially, Hot Pie played the part of three characters from the book. Well, I I, I mean... I would think as a watcher who read the books, I would enjoy getting surprised by some stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it keeps it fresh watching it. Yeah. So I really give them props for that. And the other thing real quick with, you know, 
Melisandre being able to prove Jamie and Cersei's incest, that would give it an advantage to Stannis. So I could see her motivation towards wanting Jenry for that purpose as well. Oh, for sure. Okay. Well, at River Run, I think we got that fourth wedding you foreshadowed last week, Nico. Guys, Rob Stark making it up to Walder Frey for not marrying his daughter requires Edmer to now marry one of his daughters. In my opinion, I know Edmer blew it with capturing the mountain. Cause he's a complete putz. But I kind of felt bad for him here because he really didn't screw up bad enough to get stuck in a loveless marriage. Hopefully Rob will come through on making it up to his uncle, like he said. But since this show has started, Rob really hasn't come through on, on any of his promises. So I guess we'll see on that one. Nico, should we be feeling sorry for Edmure with this wedding scenario? Can you give us any indicators that Rob will truly make it up to him? Dan, this is indeed the fourth wedding I was hinting at last week. Unfortunately, I cannot give any details away without ruining, and I do mean ruining, a major plot point of the entire season. So just look forward to this and enjoy the story because it's going to be great. There you guys. There you guys go. That's our disclaimer. Our teaser. Can I just go with that because I'm not going to ask any more because I don't want to get ruined. So anyhow, jumping to Heron Hall. I was kind of disappointed we did get to see more of Brienne and Jamie since they seem to share scenes that act as one of the star attractions in every episode this season. Although with Jamie and Brienne's popularity this season, fans on the internet have begun to ship them. And in my mind, I just don't think it's time for that just yet because I see them having more of a brothers in arms respect for one another rather than a romantic attraction. But again, with Roos Bolton agreeing to free Jamie while Brienne must remain a prisoner at Harrenhal, I'm wondering if Jamie will refuse to be freed unless she comes with him, or maybe he ends up coming back for her. Again, I think it's going to be the latter option, because the King's Landing story seems to be setting it up for Jamie's return. Nico, do you agree that it's too early to be shipping Jamie and Brienne, or that we shouldn't be shipping them at all? Come I on to something about my predictions regarding how Jamie is going to respond to being freed without Brienne? I think shippers exist for just about every pairing of characters there have ever been on TV. There are even fanfic shippers for <laughs> Kirk and Spock, so don't get yes. too wrapped up in the internet's shipping every character <laughs> pairing out there. I agree with you, Dan, that there is more of a brothers-in-arms sort of respect going on here between Jamie and Brienne. As for the refusal or coming back question, you'll probably see this play out next week. Or the one after that. So I'm not even going to hint at it, but it should be epic either way it goes. Well, I just kind of wanted to give the disclaimer that we're not on the, the shipping spectrum with Jamie and Brienne, at least at this point. No, you know, I'm all for them continuing this respect and growing right. in respect. And maybe, maybe if things continue to go, you know, one of them doesn't die because that's always a possibility in this show, right. that maybe they'll become friends. Even yeah, though they're on opposite ends, you know, they'll have so much respect that they will have a friendship come out of that. And I think that would be an interesting way to go. Plus, again, I would think it would kill their storyline's uniqueness. Yes. Compared to what's going on with Gilly and Sam and then Ygritte and John. So I think it needs to stay that way. Guys, for the big time story developments of this episode, we move into our King's Landing report, where finally someone puts Tywin Lannister in his place. Because if you don't know already, I hate Tywin Lannister. And the satisfaction of sticking it to old Tywin went to Marjorie's grandmother, Lady Olena, because she called him out regarding Joffrey being the offspring of Jamie and Cersei, not King Robert, to prevent Loras from marrying Cersei. Unfortunately, the lady did not get her way, because Tywin counteracted her threat by wanting to put Loras in the King's Guard. But I do not think this is the last of the clashes between these two, because I think Tyrion may combine forces with Lady Olena, because she told Tywin he was what she expected, meaning that she has... More of a respect for Tyrion than his father. 
So, Nico, is this the last of the battles? Wills between Tywin and Lady Alina? Please tell me no, because the scene was great. Also, what did you make of the clash between these elder statesmen? Dan, this will most likely not be the last negotiation between these two heads of house. But I can't be sure because it seems that some of the interactions slash discussions from the books have been rolled into each other, and they don't seem to be exactly as I remember them. I know certain details still need to be determined, and maybe we'll see them that play out with another great scene between these two, but I just can't be certain that it will play out that way because they have sort of rolled different discussions into a single scene rather than being multiple times coming together. Well, I hope so, but if it makes sense time-wise to not have more, that's cool. Yeah, I still want to see more too because it was it was fun to see these two go at it and yeah. try and outsmart each other, but be pretty much deadlocked in the intelligence. Well, Diana Rigg has just been amazing in everything I've seen her in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, but this in Doctor Who, so I'm like, just keep giving us more because it's great stuff. Yes. Anyhow, going back to Tyrion, I got all excited when he met with Cersei, where it was revealed Joffrey tried to have him killed because I thought their differences being settled, but they were going to come up with a clever plan to get out of their weddings but when they put all their hopes on jamie my face sank and i'm sure theirs will too once they discover jamie has lost a hand so nico will the discovery that jamie lost his hand make cersei and tyran's aspirations go up in smoke kind of i right on the fact that they have come to a truce for the time being when jamie returns maimed it changes a lot in king's landing and leads to a whole lot of plot development It most certainly hurts Cersei and Tyrion's hopes of him saving the day, but it also changes the family dynamic. As for Cersei and Tyrion, don't be so sure about them forming a truce. Tyrion would never do anything to harm or kill his sister physically, but she hates him and has hated him his entire life because their mother died in his childbirth, and Cersei has blamed him for that. Thus, he can do no right in her eyes and will always be the monster that killed her mother. So she may play nice, but she will never trust nor actually truce with her brother Tyrion. Just wait until you see where these two go, because it's good. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, especially with how they worship Jamie as this like epic hero. And to see him come back the way he is now, it's going to be very interesting. Well, Tyrion loves his brother and sister. He, he yeah. can't help it. He loves his brother and sister, but he loves his brother most because right. his brother loves him back. You know, and his brother is one of the few people in the entire kingdom that does not treat him, you know, as a dwarf. Because I I see them stay close regardless of what's happened. But Cersei, I think it's going to change. Yes. I mean, I kind of see Tyrion and Jaime on one side and Cersei on the other. I can definitely see that as a possibility, and yeah. I'm not going to confirm or deny it, but definitely see it as a possibility. Well, they always surprise us. Just when I think one thing's going to go one way, it goes another. So that could happen too. Yep. So take everything I say with a grain of salt, folks. Now, remember earlier how I felt sorry for Edmure? Well, I felt even worse for Sansa, that she was so excited about marrying Loras. But then it all came crashing down when she discovered she had to marry Tyrion. God, when asked for her hand, I thought he handled his words in a very strong way, with Shai explaining the situation to Sansa in a really respectful fashion, because I do think he does feel sorry for her. God, that note, is a big fan of Tyrion, and I hope he gets the opportunity to be the hero, can make things right with Sansa. But knowing this show, things never turn out right for the characters who try to do good. Nico, did you feel that Tyrion handled this situation the best he could under the circumstances? And is there any hope that this wedding that's on the way is going to work out for the best or not happen at all? I figure if Tyrion came up with a way to get out of it, Sansa would go right along with the plan. Dan, 
Tyrion handled this as best as anyone could, and he treats Sansa with the respect and courtesy that Joffrey never did. Remember, he was the only one who would stand up for her to the king. You will not be disappointed with how this all plays out because Tyrion remains one of the most honorable characters in this series and how he handles this situation will be a major plot point for the remainder of the season and well into the next season. It's gonna be awesome and it's really good because Tyrion is a good character and really surprisingly one of the most honorable men. Yeah, he sleeps around with all the prostitutes. He spends his money on lavish things. But when it comes down to it, he is an honorable man. And that's, and that's why you love him. You know, he's he's a jerk. He might not be the nicest guy ever, but he's honorable to women and honorable in other ways, and you got to love him for it. Yeah. So if that's if it's going to get us more of that, I have no problem with that. That's great stuff. Now, last week, I described Littlefinger as weaselly, but I would like to amend that statement after watching the scene he shared with Morris at the end of this episode. You are right, Nico, about Littlefinger being the smartest guy in the entire kingdom because the incredibly frightening rant he made about using chaos to gain the Iron Throne juxtaposed against Joffrey killing the Ad Maiden acting as Varys' spy showed that he's not just weaselly, but pure, maniacally evil, like a Bond villain, because he's willing to use sheer chaos for power. Nico, for a long time, I've always thought of Tywin Lannister as this big villain, but now after seeing what he is capable of, for the chaos he's willing to unleash, Tywin's just a greedy man who can't accept his children. Because Littlefinger is the true epitome of the human evil threatening the well-being of the Seven Kingdoms. Nico, do you think this is a fair assessment for me to make about the Littlefinger character? Nah, Dan, I think it goes a little bit too far. I do not think he's the epitome of evil in this show. I meant for humans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joffrey, yeah, probably, because he's a psychopath and a sociopath. But I think Littlefinger is an opportunist and maybe a psychopath himself, but he's not evil, I don't think. He used Joffrey's evil to eliminate an enemy, which is psychopathic, but he's not physically evil. But then maybe that makes him more evil. I don't know. I'm not sure. He seems to me, at least, to be more restrained than Joffrey. And later in the show, you will see yet another side of him that may cause you to once again change your opinion on Littlefinger. But we'll see if that happens. I know they're going to go there, but I wonder if maybe you'll see him in a different light after it. Well, this was like the evil James Bond supervillain rant at the end of this episode. Yeah, you know, it did have sort of that feel. I just think that it was it shows his manipulative abilities. And yeah. I just don't know that he's necessarily that evil. I think that he's uh-huh. taking an opportunity as it presents and taking full advantage of that. And yes, uh, a woman yeah. died and it was it was terrible in that sense. Yeah. But he sort of just pointed a monster at someone that he needed eliminated. Well, I've seen the actor who plays him as a villain before. Yeah. Can he just infuriates me as a villain? Okay. So it's just that fire was here in this scene. Because he does it great. I mean, he's oh yeah, he plays it excellent. I mean, I, I think he's supposed to take me off. You know, he's doing his job. But still, every time I see him, he's just like, I want to get that guy. Yeah, he does definitely play that character very well. And, and I'm sure in real life, the guy is really great. He's probably a really nice guy. But when you see him acting on screen as these types of characters, it's just like, grrr. And anyhow, because I want to end this discussion, got a good note. We're going to the wall on the northern side. And we're going to go right up at the wall. As Jon Snow had a very good reason to not look down as he scaled the wall with a very good view of Ygritte in front of him. Although... 
before that, I really liked how the issue was handled with John and Yagret's relationship being based on a lie. With Yagret explaining that she knows the truth, but won't blow the whistle on him as long as he remains loyal to her. Because at the end of the day, neither one of the sides they fight for care if they live or die. But personally, it would matter if they lost one another. In my opinion, this was a very quick and easy way to resolve this issue, could jump right into the action while making us want to root for John and Yagret as a couple, with an adding a forbidden us-against-the-world dynamic to their relationship. Speaking of the action, watching John and the Wildlings scale the wall kind of reminded me of that movie starring Chris O'Donnell called Vertical Limit. But I've got to say, there were some pretty impressive special effects used in these sequences, and several great camera shots that gave the disorientation of climbing at high altitudes. But once they reached the top, the view of the Nine Kingdoms on the other side was beautiful. And there was something about it when John and Yagret kissed that with that image in the background, which made me a tremendous shipper for their romance. So Nico, would you classify yourself as a John Snow and Yagret shipper? And did the book set up the romantic moment they uh, shared atop the wall as well as this episode did? Also, what did you think of the wall scaling sequences? Were they impressive or cliffhanger cheesy? Oh yeah, and are the guys who cut the ropes that connected them to, to John and Yagret dead men at the hands of John's sword? Dan, I am for sure a John and Yagret shipper. This scene on the top of the wall did not stick with me from the books as much as it did here in the show, but I think that's because it wrapped a few of the other scenes from the book that I remember more that they did not show in the series into this scene to give us that moment at the top, which was great. So essentially, they took a bunch of the different plot movement points of their relationship and put it all into this one scene. The wall scaling sequence in general was amazing, and the effects were great. I really felt like the show captured this sequence maybe even better than in the books because the visuals were that amazing. So yeah, Dan, this was a great sequence. I can't answer your last question because that strays into the spoiler area too much. But remember that the guy who actually cut it wanted John dead when he first met them. So it probably will not be the last time they clash. That's all I'm going to give you because I don't want to spoil. Well, that's kind of classic of this type of situation. Yeah. Of the double agent situation. There's always that guy, that pesky guy that wants to call out the hero. Yeah. So that, yeah, it's perfect. But yeah, I'm glad you're impressed with these scenes because I really thought they were great. It hit the romance of this plotline very well. Yeah, and the visuals of seeing off to the north first and then off to the south to the Seven Kingdoms was amazing. It's really great to see a true romance on this show. I mean, I know we got that with Rob Stark, but I like this one because it's not everyone's running around saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. This is bad. You know, I, I, I like this one. Yeah. It's just fun to watch. And the flirtation that goes on between them is just, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yes. So anyway, speaking of flirting, we're going to move on to the show with everyone's favorite shipped couple on television, Beckett and Castle, with the Castle episode, The Human Factor. Castle and Beckett find themselves shut out of a crime scene by Homeland Security. Things get complicated when they discover that the victim, a government whistleblower, was killed by a military drone's missile. Over the past two weeks, we've been worried that Castle has gotten itself into hot water, headed towards the dreaded sixth season slump. As we were presented with this issue that came out of nowhere regarding Beckett questioning where her relationship with Castle is going, when he already told her that he loved her, Castle was willing to die with her at the hands of a mob. Now, many folks and critics out there blame this on the past two episodes being flip-flopped, which the writers could not help, but regardless of which way the episodes were ordered, this still would have been a problem. 
Thankfully, for the most part, which we will get to at the end of this discussion, this episode of Castle stayed away from this trivial romantic garbage and set the tone for a season six that may enhance the scale of the series. With Castle and Beckett having to unravel a government conspiracy revolving around a man killed by a military drone. Then again, with that being said, don't worry, this episode did not go outside the wheelhouse of what we would expect from a castle mystery. As like with all the other Homeland Security government conspiracy episodes, the case started out on this huge epic scale, but ultimately it boiled down to a domestic dispute involving a son murdering his father because he cheated on his mother. Although, despite the resolution to this murder mystery being something you would find on any other crime show, this episode's connections to government conspiracies, military technology, and Castle's fears of the machines taking over did its job of sucking us right in. Nico, were you invested in this week's mystery? Did it epic scale with the military suck you into it? Yeah, Dan. This mystery and story really got me invested in the episode. I really liked the way it looked, like it was going to be a huge government-level, conspiracy-level mystery, but took a turn to being a much smaller mystery, with the son killing his father by drone strike. I mean, how awesome is that, right? I know. I was sucked right in and enjoyed it through almost to the end. Almost to the end. Okay, I can see why. Yeah. But again, for the mystery standpoint, this was a traditional good castle mystery. Oh, yeah. That was on you know on the scale of some of those epic scale mysteries they've had, like some of the two-parters and things like that. So I thought they handled it very well like those. And I get big makeup for that one with the, the millionaire guy. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Now, my parents' complaint about this episode was its use of drones, open-source military software, and facial recognition being far-fetched, because they felt these tools are more suited towards shows which had established these concepts from the beginning, like A Person of Interest or 24, instead of Castle, which initially began and still mainly is a police procedural. To an after-scene, Beckett and Castle deal with the nuclear mob, preventing World War III, and Castle having a dad of the CIA, a mystery that relied on cutting-edge technology, was just another day at the office from my perspective. Personally, I thought the drones flying in and shooting at Castle and Beckett was maybe a little too much, but the writers allowed me to look past it thanks to Castle dropping the North by Northwest reference, kind of joke surrounding Castle taking credit for shooting down the drone, when we clearly knew it was Beckett. Nico, did you think the use of the drones, open source military software, and facial recognition was too far-fetched for this episode or Castle as a series? No, Dan. All of these aspects of the episode were based in reality and are actual things that exist in the real world, so I felt it totally fit into the castle world. I enjoyed the cutting-edge feel that this episode portrayed because it made sense being they were going up against the feds to catch the murderer, it was going to be heightened. Thus, they needed, much like the CIA episode last season, to have the best toys available. Therefore, I liked it. I liked this cutting-edge feel. Well, thank you for saying that so my parents who are listening know that it's real. Because I'm like, they're like, that's too far-fetched. It's not going to be like that. I'm like, Nico would say it's real. I know we've talked about this stuff before. Like, it's real. It's real. They're like, okay, whatever. Now, Nico said it. Hear that. All right. Problem solved. Speaking of fun moments in this episode, like the North by Northwest reference. I loved all of Castle's ridiculous rise of the machine prophecies and how Beckett messed with Castle's somewhat childish fear by attacking him with all the remote control toys in his apartment. And that tank was really cool. I like that tank. I kind of want one myself. Also, I really enjoyed Carlos Bernard, who played one of my favorite characters about 24 until they turned him evil as Jared Stack from the Attorney General's office. 
The subtle sarcasm that Bernard delivered in his character's responses to Castle and the guy's imaginative theories about his job was just brilliant. But if Jared Stack sticks around for a while or becomes a series regular, depending on Beckett's decision regarding a certain offer he gave her, I'd be totally open for it, as I know Carlos Bernard has been looking to be a part of another show. But I hope that doesn't mean we have to say goodbye to Ryan and Esposito, because I think there's still more stories to tell with those guys. But if the actors are leaving to have their own shows, more power to them. Nico, were you amused by all the fun the writers and actors had with Castle's wild rise of the machine theories? Also, did you enjoy Carlos Bernard's presence in this episode, along with the subtle sarcasm he brought to the table? Dan, I did enjoy the Terminator and Rise of the Machine theme and how much fun they had with it, especially when Beckett tricked him into thinking that his tank and helicopter had turned yeah. against him. I loved it. As for Carlos Bernard's character, his presence in the episode, uh, I enjoyed it here, but would not want him to be a series regular or big part of the show. I think he was brilliant in this episode and enjoyed his sarcastic remarks towards Castle's crazy theories, but I'm not sure it would work so well as it did here over an extended period of time. We might get more annoyed with it than actually enjoy it week to week. But I guess we'll see if they go that route with Beckett next season and we have to worry about it. Yeah, and those thoughts are speculation. Mm -hmm. I agree with you too. I'm not totally set on them doing that or wanting him to be a part of things. Well, also with his feelings towards Beckett, because there was definite admiration. Yeah. I think that it would also be sexual or you know romantic and i think that that would pit him and castle against each other and that's just silly i don't want to see that i don't want to see that on this show yeah because the way he was looking at her in the interrogation scene could almost remind me of the way castle looked at her in the pilot when he said oh i you know i've got to tail her yes when we knew that that was the thing that moment when he's in the interrogation room because he says to castle look at her look at how well she does this mm -hmm. i mean you knew right away uh-oh but it may, there may be a competition next week. Would you be okay if it was a one-time deal thing? Yeah, I think so. I think if it's okay. short and they wrap it up, I'll be okay with it. All right. Well, now I'm going to go with a little bit of speculation here. Just bear with me a minute and we'll get Nico's thoughts after I set everything on the table here. But finally, guys, with all penultimate episodes, something big must take place to get the audience buzzing about the season finale. Because this year, Castle presented us with Jared Stack offering Beckett a job at the Attorney General's office in D.C., which means she has to move away from Castle if she takes the job. And in my opinion, this is a conflict for their romance that seems to have come a little less out of nowhere for Becca's character compared to her wondering where the relationship is going. Because supposedly, and I don't know how they're going to have time to do it, the story surrounding the murder of Beckett's mom with Senator Bracken is going to be resolved. And after that, really, what does Beckett have? I mean, she's got Castle, but now in reaching a point where she has put her mother's murder behind her, I think Beckett is going to want to go after her original dream of becoming a lawyer, which working in the Attorney General's office would probably help her achieve. So in other words, I'm not necessarily sure if I like it, but I'm going with yes, that Beckett is going to take the job at the Attorney General's office. Kind of next season's premiere, we are probably going to see her working at that job, let's say maybe three or six months into it. But then... Either she ends up hating the job or something big happens like return of the triple killer big to get her to return to New York. And the whole season is going to be about Castle and Beckett rekindling their relationship. Ultimately, I would like to go with my original theory of Beckett taking the job in D.C. and Castle having his dad pull strings 
so he could follow after her. But now that the job is with the attorney general and not the FBI, like I predicted, I'm going with this theory of Beckett leaving could having to come back because I just don't think a writer would be privy to legal cases surrounding material classified by the government. In addition, I don't want to lose the presence of Brian and Esposito because I think the show stayed in New York because the most logical way of keeping them around. Anyway, I've spun my web of theories enough, leaving Nico to answer the million-dollar question of this discussion. Will Beckett stay or will she go? Also, share with us any other final thoughts or observations that you had about this, what I like to call, turnaround episode of Castle. Yeah, to be honest, Dan, I don't like any of your options. <laughs> but I, I think, figured you are going to hate this. I think your newest theory is probably the most likely way it will go. I think you're correct that when they resolve the Beckett's mom's murder thing in the finale, it will lead to her taking the job and then working there over the summer hiatus and we'll jump three months into the future from the finale and we'll see her maybe brought back to New York City for some reason in the premiere. But I'm not sure if it will be the triple killer. Maybe That was just an example. No, no, I understand. Maybe rather it will be the castle-based mystery started in the season premiere that we had discussed before. Right. Whether it's his father's murder or something that they need to to fix, and Beckett maybe comes back for that. I also think that this move to DC will put a strain or maybe even end the relationship with Castle, and they will need to, as you said, rekindle that next season, and Beckett will have to actually win Castle back after she hurt him by leaving. I don't like this, and as I said earlier, but I do think it is how it might go. And it will be disappointing for the season finale cliffhanger and maybe even into the first few episodes of next season. So, I don't know. I'm so, not you've really... got some joyous reviews to look forward to from ATA. Yeah. Cuff Castle. I'm not really excited about that. <laughs> so, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're scared to keep them together because of what happened to Bones. Even though Bones kind of changed the game on that. But... They don't want to become that. So I feel like this is their desperation move to do that. And I just, I don't know. Season six is rough, man. I've always told you that. Yeah, just pay the original writers a little bit more to keep them on this show rather than them going off and writing their own shows, you know? Yeah, exactly. Something. I I, I don't know. I, I Nathan Fillon, I love the man. He's great, but I don't even know if he can beat the sixth season slump. We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> Go take a look at the shows that have worked. In a sixth season, like Psych, that's a mystery show. But again, that show had to go way outside the box to do some stuff. Yeah, that's and real house. it works because they can get away with the crazy comedy. Yeah, so I don't know. This is going to be interesting to see where this goes. I'm going to be interested to see how next week's episode plays out. Because the trailer didn't even say that they're going to cover anything about resolving Beckett's mom's murder next week or anything with Senator Bracken. Right. So I don't know. They may drag it out another season. God, that might be a good idea at this point. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Anyhow, we're going to move on to a show that I thought had a, a kind of a, a weak first half of the season. And Nico and I kind of believed that it was going in the direction of a dramedy. But now I really feel like they've kind of had a turnaround and really brought back the great comedy that's made this a really decent show. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode, My Hero. 
Mitch's ex-boyfriend Teddy invites the clan to a fundraiser at the roller rink, at which Manny attempts to choose between family members for his hero essay. Luke confesses he's having a personal issue. Haley teaches Alex how to flirt with boys. Claire avoids answering Jay about a job he'd like her to take with him. And Phil teaches Gloria to skate, all while Cam's jealousy festers over the family liking Teddy more than they like him. Well, this was another one of those great episodes of Modern Family that stayed in one location of a roller rink and had a very funny plot lines featuring all of our favorite characters, including Cam getting upset because Mitchell's ex-boyfriend was having an affair with his family, and Phil teaching Gloria how to roller skate. But my favorite comedic part of this episode was Manny choosing between family members for his hero essay, and crossing each family member off of his list every time they offended him or did something inappropriate, such as the great scene where Luke was complaining about always having to be the lovable sidekick on the Manny show while binge-eating his problems away. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? Yeah, my favorite comedic moment would have to be all the Cam being jealous parts and how every time Cam did something, Teddy would one-up him. It just worked for me this week, and it was my favorite comedic moment. Yeah, especially with the boxing machine. Yeah. Could he hit the punching bag and Cam gets the world record of the big teddy bear? Because at the end of the episode, Teddy does it. And he's like, that's the first punch I threw. Yeah. Oh, poor Cam. Uh, great stuff, though. A lot of fun. And uh, Phil with the pantsing was good as well. Yeah. Great Phil Dumphy moment. Anyhow, we're going to move on to an episode that just made my Wednesday night. It just had me cracking up all the way through. And that's an episode of Psych named after one of Nico's favorite movies starring the great Ron Livingston, titled Office Space. Thank you out in the end. Sean scrambles to cover for Gus when he inadvertently corrupts a crime scene and makes himself a prime suspect. This week's psych started out with probably one of the funniest Gus scenes I've ever seen on this show. Because he and Sean basically make a mockery out of crime scene preservation. Guys, Gus shows up at Sean, I mean Jewel's house, panicked that he's the prime suspect in a murder. Just how did Gus get into this mess? Well, Gus was at work. Yeah, I know. I can't believe he still has the job either. Cause the same goes for many of the characters in this episode. But someone has to pay his bills, the psych bills, and Sean's bills, because it's just selfish if someone does it. Anyway, to make a long story short, Gus has an altercation with his boss for yelling at his assistant. Cause when he goes back to his office later that night, he finds his boss dead, holding a profane note Gus wrote saying he quits. Obviously, since this is Gus, he panics and tries to rip the note out of his dead boss's hand. But this goes horribly wrong. They completely wrecks the crime scene. Got a fashion that had me roaring with laughter. Got a guy with a degree in forensic science, like our beloved co-host Nico, cringing. From here, Gus goes to get Sean, who makes matters even worse by tripping over the dead body and getting a bloody nose everywhere. So naturally, at this point, Sean and Gus do what any adolescent man would do when in trouble. They go to Dad, which wraps poor, unsuspecting Henry in this scenario. Then Jules gets involved in it. And the next thing we know, Woody is tied to the couch at the psych office because he can't keep a secret. I guess that means it's just another Tuesday in the psych office, or in the case of us audience members, Wednesday, where crazy tends to be the common theme. On that note, Nico, we've watched for years because our favorite television detectives Cut piece together, crime scene after crime scene. But what did you think about being presented with a scenario where those very same detectives inadvertently mutilated the crime scene, could not getting busted, depended on them racing to solve the mystery? 
Dan, I nearly split my sides watching this episode as I thought it was one of the funniest in a very long time. And that's not knocking the show recently, but it was just so amazing this week. Dan, the entire crime scene destruction was so much fun that I had to go back and watch it two more times to make sure I was not missing anything from all the laughing I was doing. Seriously, this was a great change up that really worked this week. So, yeah. One of the best episodes, maybe of all time. One of the best Gus sequences. Oh, yeah. Of the series. I mean, oh, my God. The dialogue, the black jokes, the physical comedy, the use of flashbacks. Oh, my gosh. Hilarious. Hilarious, hilarious all the way through. I mean, they hit a home run with this. Absolutely. I just, I loved it. Oh, my gosh. My whole family was just cracking up. Gotta get, I had to watch it multiple times as well. Moving forward with the incidents of Sean and Gus corrupting a crime scene, going from bad to worse, like a classic comedy film, roping in more and more people as it goes. I was glad Sean kept his promise to be honest with Juliet by letting her in on the trouble he got into, but I didn't like Sean being shown sleeping with Jules at the beginning of the episode. When first seeing this, I thought the episode was shown out of order, but then Jules explained it because a one-night stand, that's not going to happen again. However, with all the praising we've been giving Psych over the past couple weeks for how its writers have been handling Juliet yet discovering Sean is not psychic, got his fight to win her back. Seeing them in bed together this quickly kind of cheapened it all. Yes, Jules and Sean broken up was agonizing to the shippers, but we were getting some great internal character development for Sean. But with this episode, it just seemed like they brushed it all underneath the rug. But I think Sean getting back together with her should be a much more epic thing. Uh, Nico, did it bother you that they glossed over the conflict between Juliet and Sean that really invested me in the show over the past couple weeks? No, Dan, it did not really bother me. It was jarring at first, and I thought that maybe this yeah. was out of order as well. But once Jules explained what had happened, it made sort of perfect sense to me. People were broken up recently but still have feelings for each other and are only apart because of something like Sean not being completely honest with Jules, yet working hard to get back in her good graces. They tend to backslide like this and have instances where they might sleep together again. I think we'll get the necessary work and character development and the conflict resolution you thought was missing here in a future episode before they are all better and together for good. But I was okay with this backslide here because it seems to be more realistic or, you know, something that doesn't necessarily happen on TV, but does happen in real life sometimes. Glad it was a quick way of addressing it because that wasn't the focus of this episode. Exactly. It was a Gus-centered episode, and it was more, much more focused on delivering the great comedy. Because when you have a scene like that that's solid gold, you kind of got to roll with it. So that makes sense. But should I look at this Johnny Jules thing? Kind of like the one episode where they had Ted and Robin living together on How I Met Your Mother, and then they had the backslide? Right. Okay, so I, I should look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I think it's going to be a little bit different in the sense that it's work. it is going to be a step in working towards getting them back together where it wasn't necessarily the same on that show in the whole long run of it. Okay. Yeah. Again, as I said before, there were a lot of people who got roped into Sean and Gus covering up their crime scene corruption. But there were others, most importantly, Lassie, who had to be left in the dark, leading to all sorts of comedic moments, including Anchorman's Dave Koshner, guest starring as a security guard named Leslie Valerie Sally, who was too good at his job. The co-worker who had a crush on Gus singing a very morbid version of Time After Time in honor of his boss. Sitting in my cubicle, the clock ticks and I think of you. I try to make plans you'd postpone. Now you're dead, Roger. You think Helen's really sick? Not at all. We 
find Helen, we find our killer. You left without a sign. Your RRSPs now RIPs. All out of time. I just cut you an extra set of my keys. Now there's no time. You promised me. Spencer for hire. Woody, I think you boys should get down here right away. Never told you, but you look just like Chris Klein. You were sublime. Gus throwing cheese puffs could have tied up Woody when he was hungry. Juliet covering for Sean by saying she went to the lady doctor, making Lassie think she was pregnant with Sean's demon seed. Gus getting a raise from the scratch and sniff guy when he thought he got caught. And Sean revealing that he plans to name his firstborn child Starfish Spencer. In addition, I got a good chuckle out of Sean ripping on 24 in response to the issue of a tied up Woody by saying Jack Bauer wore adult diapers too because it's the only way of explaining how he did go to the can ski. And the line about the truth is going to land you in front of a fiery squad of men who look like Patrick Wilson when Gus got his Hurricane Wilson on. But that's the last you're going to get from me with movie and TV references, because I probably need to remember Nico is still tied up at the psych office. He probably wants to share a few quotes along with his favorite comedic moment from the episode. I absolutely love this episode, so breaking it down to my favorites might be difficult, <laughs> but here I go. As I said earlier, I absolutely love the crime scene scene, Yes. Both Gus by himself and then again when Sean showed up to help. I really enjoyed the gag about stealing his socks but leaving his shoes on. I loved all the subtle office space references, especially the red swing line stapler. Yeah. Great stuff. The song was amazing, of course. Also, yes. Sean's Glengarry Glen Ross performance, which Gus halted with the line. With regards to this month's sales contest, first prize is Cadillac Eldorado. Second prize is set of steak knives. Sean, we do not have time for Baldwin. Sean's yeah. comment about Gus's incriminating cocoa butter lotion saying, you go around smelling like a vacation, it's going to come back to bite us. Really, I could go on, but I'll leave it there. Great, <laughs> funny episode. Lots of good stuff. And also this show ripped out one of the producers on the show, Chris Hines, in the Time After Time song, because uh, there's one line at the very end of it where he sings that the, the dead boss looked like Chris Hines. Oh, yeah. So that was a little fun reference, fun poke. I mean, Sykes writers are just having a great time with this episode. And I'm glad they got to run wild with it because this was probably one of the best. This is one of the funniest episodes of the show out there, really. Outstanding. Not my favorite, but one of the funniest. All in all, this was a bring your best white friend to work day for Syke that could be classified as a laugh a minute episode, which could not be done justice by us just describing it. So if you want to relive the laughs of this episode, I suggest watching it again. Because for those of you looking for Officer Buzz McNabb in this episode, he quit his job as a stripper, and now moonlights as a security guard working for Merlin Global Group on the CW series Arrow. If you caught him this week, Nico, and listeners on the show. Did you see McNabb and Arrow, Nico? I did. Yes. So that was pretty awesome. That was great. My brother and I were watching it. It's like, it's McNabb, but he's on early. Yeah. Um, great stuff. I just laughed when I saw him. Yes. Because I thought of the stripper scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Anyhow, um, Nico, did you have any final thoughts regarding this episode? Or are you ready to move on? I mean, we covered it greatly, I think, just with all the zaniestness that it was. Yeah, I'm ready to move on. All right. Well, let's move on to an episode of Supernatural that was mind-blowing. I mean, this if you want to set up a finale, Supernatural did it. Supernatural has set up finales really well in the past. The past two years, well, I don't know what the heck happened. But now Jeremy Carver's in charge, and he's brought things back to the great penultimate episodes that just get me psyched up about this show. So let's talk about the Supernatural episode that was a lot more exciting than its title kind of said, entitled Clip Show. 
Sam, Dean, and Castiel are reunited and search the files of the Men of Letters to find a film that could help them figure out the third trial. Meanwhile, Metatron asks for Castiel's advice about the problems in heaven, and Crowley delves into the brothers' past and some familiar faces. With this week's episode of Supernatural being entitled Clip Show, I was a little nervous that we were going to get the classic CW disappointing penultimate episode that makes the season finale feel rush as it injustice and doomsday for you smallville fans out there or the last season of this show where the final showdown with leviathan dick roman was incredibly anticlimactic but what we ended up with here god this episode was a clip show that blew the one we got on castle two weeks ago out of the water now, how did Supernatural deliver one of the best and most relevant clip episodes I've ever seen? Well, it basically used looks back into the past, as in season one for the most part, to be precise, as a means of kicking the season finale into high gear by putting everything the Winchesters are out there fighting for at risk. Although, before we get into this too much, I would like to talk about some of the story advancements that occurred related to present day, beginning with Sam getting upset with Dean for being too hard on Cass. Can I get where the younger Winchester brother is coming from here? As he himself has made huge mistakes, even at the beginning of this season, by choosing not to try to find Dean when he was trapped in purgatory. And Dean ended up forgiving him for this. So why can't he forgive Cass when it's kind of the same situation? In my opinion, Cass running off to hide with the angel tablet was really nothing compared to him unleashing the Leviathans upon the world. And his actions sort of make a ton of sense now, based on the situation that occurs at the end of the episode. Nico, do you agree with Sam about Dean being too hard on Cass? Dan, I can see where both brothers are coming from. Sam sees Dean as being too hard on Cass for this transgression when he was so easily forgave Cass last time for the whole Leviathan releasing things and did not seem to do the same here was inconsistent in Sam's eyes and he knows that Cass is trying to redeem himself for the Leviathan thing and that that played into his actions earlier. But I also see Dean's perspective that this time Cass turned his back on them specifically and him particularly and said he could not trust them and then screwed up and got the tablet taken anyway. So I can see why Dean is being so hard on Cass because he was hurt by Cass's betrayal so much more this time. So yeah, I can see it both ways. I don't necessarily agree with Sam that he's being too hard on him. Okay, well, I still believe when Cass touched that tablet it was a signal or a vision or a warning about the future that he had because mm-hmm. based on the way this episode ended i see why he did that okay or at least why the tablet told him to do that because i'm just thinking of how they're going to get out of the predicament that they're, they got into which we'll get to in a minute when we get there but ultimately uh is trusting cast for like the 15th time ends up leaving the angel doing the mundane task of buying the winchester's groceries in quite an amusing segment which ends with him meeting metatron outside the store who presents cast with a plan to close the gates of heaven as a means of locking all the angels in a room to settle their differences on that note i like how metatron is motivating cast to retake his position as leader of heaven because that's the path i want him to take get his redemption but the business that occurred in this episode with Cass killing an innocent Nephilim, did I say that right? I think so. Okay, it's basically calf angel, half human, who just wanted to be left alone, felt like the character kind of went back to where he was at the end of season six, with performing heinous or questionable acts for the greater good. Can I think for Cass to be a proper leader, he needs to be able to stand on his own feet, instead of succumbing to peer pressure from fellow angels. Nico, do you feel that with this storyline, Cass is back to doing the right thing, but going about it in the wrong way? Because at this point, I'm failing to see how Cass, killing an innocent, got to close the gates of heaven. Because any different than collecting souls to become a god, like he was doing 
good season sucks. Is Cass going to show us that he's learned from past mistakes by telling Metatron off? That explain to him that closing the gates on Kevin is a bad idea if it means putting more blood on his hands? Yeah, I was actually pretty huh. surprised that he didn't stand right. up to Metatron more forcibly in this episode. I would have thought that he'd have been more resistant to killing an innocent person again. We saw him struggle with it, but when she attacked them, then he was okay killing her. But still, it was their fault that she attacked them. So I'm hoping that Cass has learned his lesson and we don't have to go through all this over again. Because that'll just be repetitive and, I think, boring. So I think Jeremy Carver's got something in mind that's going to be really good for Cass. Yeah, I think this was just set up here. I think so, too. I don't think we need to worry because he's done a very good job of avoiding all the pitfalls his show's had in the past. And, and maybe that's what I think Cass needs to do, is stand on his own two feet. Because maybe that moment's coming next week. Or maybe the Winchesters have a plan up their sleeves we don't know about. It's a fake-out thing, which the show has done in the past. Not the past two years, but during the Kripke era. Now, while Cass's story was taking place, the Winchesters began progressing by completing the third trial. By discovering some old film reels in the Men of Letters library of a priest trying to cure a demon. Could seeing these scenes take place in the style of an old black and white film projector was really cool, kind of like the last week's Doctor Who episode. Because it gave a nice dose of nostalgia to the old Universal Monster movies. Because I like how it led to Dean having a heart-to-heart moment with the priest played by Doc Connell from Battlestar Galactica. Because I think he needed someone to talk with about the stress that was being put on him with carrying Sam through the trials. However, what kind of did set right with me, but I'll probably have to just go with since the Men of Letters story has breathed new life into this show is the Winchesters not knowing about a way to cure a demon until this episode. Especially with Bobby being so obsessed with exorcism because of his wife getting possessed. I would think Bobby would have left behind a book or something. I I think this should have more connected to his research and what he was doing with that and the amount of letters than just the amount of letters. But whatever. That's just a preference thing on my part. Also, I just didn't really fully get the thought process on why the Winchester decided to put Abaddon back together as a means of trying out the demon cure because they killed her human vessel. And isn't the point of the ritual making sure the person's still alive after being cured? I just, they showed the curing as a visual thing instead of explaining it. So I'm just not really clear on what all of it entails. So, uh, Nico, do you think the Winchesters not knowing about a way to cure demons before this episode is too big of a retcon? Also, was it kind of silly for the brothers to attempt curing a demon when her human vessel is already dead? No, Dan. It makes sense that no one knows about curing a demon because the priest who was attempting it was trying something completely new. And since he was killed after learning the secret exorcism, that he would not have been able to distribute this new type of exorcism to the rest of the hunting slash men of letters community. Thus, Bobby would not have been aware of the existence of a new type of exorcism. Thus, again, I don't really think of this as a a true retcon. As for curing the demon when the vessel is dead, I think it was the perfect demon to attempt the cure on because if they failed and killed her, it would not be killing a human being as well. So actually, at first thought, it was stupid for them to be using her, and I had many of the same questions you did. But after reflecting on it for a few minutes, it made complete sense to me so as not to risk (laughs) a human being's life in this trial run. But maybe they shouldn't have got someone so powerful. Yeah, that was a mistake. Oops. <laughs> or maybe back up, use another devil's trap on the ground. Yeah, or it's not good, but again, Jeremy Carver has something up his sleeve. I bought the point. Yeah, Please absolutely. make me be right on that. Finally, even though the demonology in this episode had me scratching my head at some points, what really had me raving about this episode was how the clips back to past seasons wrinkled throughout the episode connected to Crowley contacting the Winchesters with the news that he plans to kill everyone they've ever saved. 
that his next target is Sarah Blake, Sam's love interest, right after Jessica, way back in season one. That I always said was going to come back at some point. I had said that, so I'm glad I was right. Again, dude's eight years later, but I'm glad I was right. So naturally, with this news, Sam and Dean go and do what they do best. Find the girl in danger and lock her location down with salt circles, angelic symbols, devil's traps, and whatever other tricks they have up their sleeves to keep demons out. But after a heartwarming scene between Sam and the girl that got away, which did a very nice job of showing how far Sam has come after his whole soulless debacle, Sarah starts choking and dies of asphyxiation. Yep, that's right. Probably didn't send a single demon after the Winchesters. He used a hex bag to take them out because apparently his mom was a witch and just how did he get one step ahead of our heroes actually the answer is so obvious it makes the whole thing incredibly evil as crowley is shown reading chuck's supernatural novels to ruin all their real life exploits now that's what supernatural was missing during the sarah gamble years especially near the finales a villain who goes right got the winchester's jugular Yes, I know Dick Roman killed Bobby, but Crowley is going after the meat and potatoes of what gives Sam and Dean's life meaning. The reason why I've stuck with this show throughout the good and the bad. The people that they've saved. That when Crowley threatened to take away everything that the Winchesters hold dear, man did Mark A. Shepard relish in his character's evil by blowing the doors off his performance in this scene. Playing the kind of villain that we here in ATA love him as. Especially when he maniacally used Dean's family model about saving people and hunting things, which we've heard at the beginning of every single episode in season one, against him. I know I've dog Supernatural for underusing Mark A. Shepard's acting ability in the past, but this made up for it entirely by sending chills up my spine like I was watching that episode where he was a pyromaniac on the X-Files all over again. Nico, were you also blown away by Mark A. Shepard's villainous performance when he dealt his hands to the Winchesters at the end of this episode? Blown away? No. This is exactly the quality of character we've come to expect from Mark A. Shepard, so I was not blown away by it, but it was so damn good. All right. It took I took great pleasure in watching this and theorizing about it where this could go next. For sure that was that was fun. I think we will get a few more even more gruesome and vicious kills before the Winchesters are finally able to stop this from happening anymore. So I really like where it's gone, but blown away means it like totally surprised me. And since I love Mark A. Shepard and I know what a quality actor yeah. is, I would say I was kind of expecting something big from him. Well, I'm glad we got to see it on Supernatural because it's been a while since we've seen it. Yes. The Crowley character is improving even more than we thought was possible. Right. And in that sense, yeah, this was totally going to that next level. And I like that. I think Jeremy Carver understands the talent he has. Get Mark A. Shepard mm-hmm. and is letting him let loose, which is great. And the other thing is, I thought for a little bit, and I guess this could still happen, I thought the shocker was going to be that Amelia got possessed and they were going to have to cure her. And that was the final trial. Yeah, that would be kind of awesome. <laughs> Because it would tie it all together and it would be huge for Sam. I mean, that would raise the stakes tremendously for Sam. Yeah. I mean, it would really make it personal. That, I think, would be a great kind of turnaround from season five. Because he himself was possessed in season five. Right. So it would be interesting. So I, I'm just saying there's something big with Sam's going to go down. God, really, the Amelia thing could happen next week. Does it fit a little bit? Yeah, I think so. If we see the girl from season one and they're unable to save her... And then Amelia's next. That could be interesting. The only disadvantage Crowley has there is Amelia's not in the books. So he might not be aware of her. Yeah, but he has ways of figuring things like that out. 
He does. Yeah, so we'll see. But in closing this discussion with everything being put at stake for the Winchesters, I think it's safe to say that we're in for a final showdown with Crowley that will completely make up for last season. And could be a call to arms for the new men of letters, like I've been predicting. Because I'm assuming Crowley's going to go after a lot of those people because Tavadine had saved them. But I still believe that closing the gates of heaven and hell will have its consequences that Sam and Dean must deal with God, next season. Because there's really no place for souls to go when people die once they close the gates to both places. Meaning that death could come back to Earth pretty angry. And it's not because he burnt his mouth on pizza. Although who I'm having a hard time seeing fit into this is Abaddon. But based on the way she reacted when discovering Crowley was now the leader of hell, she may either use the closing of heaven and hell to free Lucifer from the cage putting him back in charge for the final season of Supernatural being Apocalypse Round 2 like Michael had predicted years ago or maybe Abaddon replaces Crowley as Queen of Hell because she becomes the big bad for next season. So with that, Nico, what's your prediction for next week's season finale? Dan, I think that Sam and Dean will be successful in closing the gates of hell and Cass will shut the gates of heaven, but I don't think that will result in souls not being able to go to heaven or hell, just not able to come back from heaven or hell. It will become a one-way ticket. As for next year, I actually think it is a combination of those two theories you had in that Aberdeen will become the big bad for the first half of this next season as she works to free Lucifer from the cage before he becomes the ultimate big bad of the season, which we both still think is going to be the final season of the show. So it makes sense that Lucifer would be the final big bad. I like this possibility and would be interested in seeing that play out next season. And I think it could be very good this time with Jeremy Carver giving us a great series finale. So it would be kind of a condensed version of what happened before. Yes. But instead of it being Lilith or Ruby, I guess it would be Abaddon. Yeah. Okay. So Abaddon takes over Hell and does that maybe early next season, replacing Crowley. Okay. And then her mission becomes freeing Lucifer because She's a devout right. disciple of Lucifer. So she, you know, loves the power, but at the same time, she wants him back. Right. And then you'll have the men of letters being built up by the Winchesters mm-hmm. in corresponding to that. Okay. Yep. And so that'll keep Kevin and those characters a part of the show. Yep, exactly. Okay. Well, I can't wait for next week. I'm looking forward to it. This is a finale for Supernatural that I'm really hyped about. Because last season, I was just tired of the show. And the season before, I was. Yeah. It's like, oh, I need a break from this. But now, got pumped up. I'm excited. I can't wait. God, it's going to be a big Wednesday night for the CW. Because the finale for Arrow will be before that. God, that's going to be a doozy as well. So, it's exciting. And ironically, the title of both episodes of Supernatural and Arrow's finales are Sacrifice. Weird anomaly there. But I don't know. So with that, uh, we're going to move on to talking about Community with a season four finale that I thought was really good. And when I watched it, I thought it was going to be the series finale. So I thought it did pretty well on that aspect, but I'm glad we got a season five. So let's talk about the Community episode, Advanced Introduction to Finality. In the season four finale, Jeff ponders the future after he receives enough credits to graduate. Elsewhere, the group revisits the darkest timeline. Well, thankfully, this isn't the case because it has been announced the community has been picked up for a fifth season. But this episode was written a lot like a series finale. And if it was the last episode, the writers did an excellent job because it paid homage to all the great moments and episodes of the series, including the dice rolling episode with the alternate timeline, making paintball cool again, Troy and Abed in the morning, got the nerd humor that 
that only this show can deliver. On top of that, I thought Jeff's graduation was handled brilliantly with the crisis that put everything at stake for his character. That explained the arrival of the study group's alternate reality doppelgangers as the whole story was taking place inside Jeff's head, much like the great Ahmed Center episodes the community has delivered. Speaking of which, my favorite comedic moment from this episode would have to be everything to do with the alternate timeline, such as Evil Jeff appearing in the normal timeline naked like a Terminator, Evil Jeff's Luke Skywalker-style robotic arm, Evil Pierce's appearance, and Dark Ahmed changing his ways by dressing like a Jedi, and becoming a fan of a retooled cable version of the cape. As for the only drawback to this great season finale for Community was that we didn't get to see anything with the city council and their plans to destroy Greendale with a giant robotic spider. But I would have been really disappointed if this was the final episode, but I'm thinking the writers are going to address this conflict as a major plotline for next season. In addition, the writers sort of covered the issue in this episode by having Chang slash Kevin, or whatever you want to call him, dive in front of the paintball evil Jeff shot at the normal Jeff to keep him from getting sent for the alternate timeline. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's episode of Community? I had a hard time picking a favorite comedic moment, but I guess I'll choose the fact that this episode seemed to pull all the major elements from the entire series and mash them all up in this could-have-been finale. I particularly liked that it was all in Jeff's head as a possible alternate timeline world and that it was paintballs that sent the evil timeliners back to their timeline, bringing back one of the best themes or ideas that worked so well for two season finales before this. I'm really glad that this show was renewed so that this was not the series finale, though it would have been an okay series finale for me. Yeah, I would have bought it, but I'm glad we got more. Because I think that city council plotline could be really great. I don't know about the spider, but the rest could be good. Right. All right, so with that, we're going to move on to a very funny episode called The Big Bang Theory, which shockingly has a whopping, I think, two episodes left of their season. So I think they've got one left. That's great. One. But anyway, we're going to talk about the penultimate to the finale episode of The Big Bang Theory, where things got kind of interesting between Sheldon and the Navy. Entitled The Love Spell Potential. All started with The Big Bang After an aborted girl's trip to Vegas, they are all playing Dungeons & Dragons together. Raj leaves after he finds that Lucy is free, and he pushes her to do things that scare her. In the game, Penny casts a love spell on Sheldon and Amy's characters, which gets Amy very upset because they are treating her and Sheldon's relationship as a joke. With the success of this year's Christmas episode, where the guys played Dungeons and Dragons, it was fun to see the girls get in on a game, especially when they turned it into gambling at the craps table in Vegas, complete with large amounts of magic potion. On that note, my favorite comedic moment from this episode was a toss-up between Sheldon ranting at Leonard for always throwing Zachary Quinto in his face when he can't accept change. But uh, relax, sometimes change is good. Uh, you were worried about Zachary Quinto being the new Spock, but you wound up liking him. Oh, please. Every time the topic of change comes up, you throw Zachary Quinto in my face. And the celebrity impressions of Nicolas Cage. Travel with caution. <laughs> These woods are home to the bones of many a fallen hero. Gal Pacino. You're playing D&D. You're playing D&D. This whole apartment... It's playing D&D. And Christopher Walken. You'd think, after all these years, I'd know not to fly over volcanoes. 
I'm a freaking idiot. That Howard brought to his role as Dungeon Master, which made Sheldon exceptionally giddy. God, Simon Helberg, who played Howard, did a lot of these impressions on Conan, and it was absolutely hilarious. So it was great that the writers were able to incorporate that talent of his into this episode, because it was just a lot of fun. And uh, Sheldon's reactions just made it a blast. Also, in terms of laughs, God, the awkwardness in Raj's and Lucy's relationship just keeps continuing to get better every week. At the same time, from a character development standpoint, I thought this episode handled Sheldon and Amy's physical intimacy issues quite well, in a way that fit both characters' personalities. But I'm not sure if the scene at the end of the episode, where Penny and Leonard heard Amy getting sexually aroused through Sheldon's door, was going too far. But again, it was from behind a closed door, so Sheldon could have just grabbed Amy's hand or kissed it to get her aroused. Nika, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory? And do you think what happened in the episode regarding the physical intimacy between Sheldon Sheldon and Amy fit the progression of the characters at this point. My favorite comedic moment was all the different celebrity impressions that Howard did as Dungeon Master. I've always been a fan of Simon Helberg's Nick Cage, but his Walken and Pacino were pretty amazing as well. But his Nick Cage was still the best. Especially since he kind of looks like him. <laughs> as for Sheldon and Amy's relationship, there was no real physical in- intimacy between them. There was intimacy in the scene where Sheldon went in to comfort her, but not physical. They were role-playing, and their characters had an intimate moment where Sheldon would roll the dice to determine the level of physical contact, but actual physical contact was not had, which fits Sheldon's character completely and is right in line with his progression as a boyfriend thus far. I think for actual physical intimacy, I think it'll be next season or further down the line. Now, do you think the characters are going to think that something occurred or no? Maybe, but I think they're also going to realize it's Sheldon. Right. It is Sheldon. So obvious. Yeah. But again, that would I could see that being a finale thing, but maybe not. Maybe they'll do something else. Anyhow, we're going to move on to talking about a finale that kind of caught me off guard, but it was the finale. Uh, CBS normally gives their dramas 23 or 24 episodes. So I was surprised to see this show get wrapped up at 22. And with this episode, I was kind of left wanting a little bit more on one front, but I think it covered another front pretty well. So let's talk about the person of interest episode, God Mode. To combat Root and Decima, Reese and Finch must seek out unusual allies to save the machine. Meanwhile, HR prepares to eliminate Carter when she probes into Cal's death, and in the past, the final fate of Nathan is revealed. If you remember from last week's discussion, we got a huge debate over what the machine's so-called god mode would entail, and and I wanted it to be a sci-fi, artificial intelligence kind of thing. Nika wanted something more realistic, but what we ended up with was a compromise between the two, because Reese becoming the machine's admin basically allowed him to see what the machine could see. Almost like what I can best describe as an advanced version of the iPhone's Surrey, telling Reese where to shoot and how to find a vehicle for transportation. So Nico, after seeing how the machine's god mode actually works, did you think it was a compromise between me wanting the show to go a little more sci-fi and you wanting it to stick more with realism? Yeah, Dan, I did think that this was a good compromise. I didn't think it went too far, which is good, and I actually am starting to like where this is going, so that's also good. Very good. Yeah, I was really scared last week where it could possibly be going. 
but this finale actually eased those fears. And I'm thinking it went a lot better than it could have. And it seemed to yeah. stay more in the real, realistic, still way in the future, you know, few years in the future, but right. still realistic. And I like your apt analysis of this being like an advanced Siri system and giving you directions on where to kill the next person or shoot the next person. I really like that. That was fun because um, Root, you know, didn't really like the two o'clock. Four o'clock, seven yeah. o'clock. So she was like, I want a rising or decreasing audio sounds. And that was kind of cool too, how it worked. And so, yeah, it was, it was really good this week. Yeah. And I, I had to think for a while how to explain it, mm-hmm. how to explain it for it away. Cause it's like, it's not Knight Rider, but it's not that advanced either. So I had to figure out what's in between. I'm like, oh, Surrey kind of works. So that's kind of why I went with that. But I'm glad you're relieved on this. Okay, you had me a little scared this week you are going to jump ship. Okay, I'm glad this got smoothed over for you. In a way, I think that made both of us happy. Yeah, it did. I think this is what I was trying to explain last week. And they did a lot better job than I ever tried to explain it. So good job, them. And that's because they're a team of writers and there's just one of me. <laughs> so anyhow. So now with Reese having access to the most advanced supercomputer on the planet and having another super spy, guys in Shaw teaming up with him, I was glad that it didn't give our favorite man in the suit an advantage with defeating the bad guys because I like seeing the hero face big odds in the season finale. And I thought the writers did just that by giving root control over the machine's god mode because while setting up a race to find the machine's actual location. Although with this race to the machine being the main focus of this episode, the show once again maintained its formula of helping persons of interest because this machine gave Reese numbers along the way towards catching up with Ruth and Finch while cleverly explaining to Shaw the information she needed to be brought into the fold without letting up on the action there needs to be in a season finale. So, Nico, did you like it that Root also had access to the machine's god mode to raise the stakes of the episode? And how saving persons of interest was cleverly slipped in along the way towards defeating her? Yeah, Dan, I really enjoyed this competing teams running towards finding the machine theme this week. This raised the stakes and kept the action level up the entire episode. Very well done and really forced Shaw and Reese to work together in a natural way. And Yep. made us see that teaming up that we've been really hoping for since her introduction earlier this season. So really well done. I also liked that they did actually give us numbers in this episode. Yeah. That was important to me, and it's been important to me the entire series, that they keep doing that. And I really liked that at the end of the episode, the machine continued to give numbers to the government, give numbers to Reese and Finch, but also contact Root. And so I think that's going to make it really interesting going forward that all of those things are continuing to go forward. But really, in this episode, while Reese and Shaw are trying to save Harold, it's also being like, "Uh, you got to do this. And it really made for one of the funniest moments in the entire series when the wedding was going on and that man was going to, if I can't have her, nobody can. And Reese just comes up, shoots him in the leg and he says, congratulations. And then drives off. It was, it was hilarious. Hilarious. So really good comedy, Great comedy to break up all the action. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this episode did not stop. That was what was great about it as well. There's a lot of explanation, but it just kept moving. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like, okay, Shaw, do you want to be a part of this? Chase me and I'll explain things as we go. And that was perfect. And they do work together really well. That's that's great. 
Again, really, I mean, I'm enjoying the back and forth that takes place between Reese and Shaw when working as a team. Can really, the chemistry between them is incredibly fun to watch. But with Shaw being around so well, got it working so well in this episode, I have a concern that we're going to go back to Carter's character becoming unimportant again, like when the show first started, because her plotline in this finale kind of was disinteresting to me. This might be our response to us becoming tired of the HR story, got Fusco strangely not being a part of this episode, since they are mainly his, got to be to deal with. But on the other hand, Carter's story this week became much more interesting when she saved Elias from being executed by HR, because we've anxiously been awaiting for him to reach a position where he could challenge Reese and Fitch once again. Because I think Carter may help place him back on top of the criminal underworld to cut down on the violence on the streets, which he complained about last week. Goliath is a villain that we love on this show, so I'm all set for him making a comeback. But the plotline, the HR plotline, needs to end right at the beginning of the season, because I don't think either one of us could take it much longer than that. Unless they add some big twist to it or some shocking aspect to it, which just doesn't seem likely at this point. So, Nikar, were you disappointed that the HR plotline wasn't wrapped up in the season finale? Do you think Shaw having a larger presence on the show will hurt Carter's relevancy? Also, what do you think Carter plans to do with Elias? I was disappointed in the lack of a wrap-up to the HR story and the complete lack of Fusco in this episode. I thought that really was the one lacking aspect of this episode. I was initially worried also about Carter becoming less important due to Shaw's addition to the team, but I think they're going to make that work by pairing up Fusco and Shaw and oh, that could be interesting. Reese and Carter many times. And then also we're going to have Reese and Shaw work together and Carter and Fusco work together. So I do think there's going to be some pairing up and then maybe working two different persons of interest at the same time on those cases or having larger persons of interest where they need four people to cover it. So kind of like how Warehouse does things. Exactly. Okay. So I do think that it's going to be different next season but also the same. And so I think that's going to make it a lot more interesting going forward. I don't know what Carter's plans with Elias are. I think she may just return his prisoner transfer vehicle to a place where it will be found by the real police, not HR, so that they can take him back to prison. I don't think she's going to set him free, but I do think she saved his life and doesn't necessarily have a plan right now. Maybe she has to call in to Reese and Finch to figure out what exactly is going on. So... We'll see how we'll see about that. Well, that may be how Fusco gets involved in the premiere episode. She calls him rather than yeah. Okay, I can see that. Just to give him something to do, so he's still a part of things. Because I definitely want him to still be there. And um, just to kind of pull back the kernel for people who don't watch Warehouse 13. Basically, Warehouse 13 is basically about a team of government agents. And basically, they have two teams that work together. And most of the episodes are split between those two teams solving different cases. So that's probably what Person of Interest is going to do next year with the team. And probably you'll have Finch orchestrating both storylines. So that'll be interesting to see. So finally, this episode wrapped itself up with flashbacks explaining just how Finch's partner, Nathan, got killed. Because it was from a bomb blast set by Hirsch, the guy who supposedly killed Shaw, giving us a strong reason to hate the ruthless government hitman. But with this, I was somewhat disappointed that Nathan was killed by a bomb blast 
instead of trying to help a person of interest. Because I think the Spider-Man complex of choosing himself over the greater good would have led to some interesting character development for Finch. Although if the writers went this route, there probably wouldn't have been a good reason why Finch didn't want to put the machine in the government's hands and turn down the Secretary General's offer at the end of this episode. So Nico, were you satisfied with how the writers explained Nathan's death? Absolutely. I thought okay. this was a great conclusion to the mystery we've been wondering about from the very beginning. I love this resolution and how it it did exactly what we thought it would do. Shove Finch into the person of interest game and start saving the irrelevance because he realized if he had not stopped or had not made the changes to the machine that he would have known about Nathan's death. He would have been able to stop it and he saw the value in the irrelevance because before he could just sign it off and say, they're not important. They're not important to the greater good until it really affected him, until it hit him. And then he realized these aren't irrelevant people. They're humans. They're they're important. They're relevant to someone. And Nathan was relevant to him. And it might not be relevant to the great grand scheme of things, but he was relevant to him. And I think that sort of changed his thinking on what needed to be done. So I liked that it was this way. And I also okay. thought it, it played very well into the parallels with what happened in the end when they offered him the opportunity to do exactly what they offered Nathan. And he said, he once told Nathan the same thing. I'm not going to fall for that. And so I think it was smart and that we know Finch knows that they killed yeah. him. You know, And so I, I like that. I do like it how he showed up at the end to meet with Nathan, though, you know, to, to help go talk to the reporter. Yes. Like, I was glad their friendship ended on a good note because it made it that much more tragic. Yeah, I think that that was important. I think yeah. that it made it even more impactful on him because he had made the decision that Nathan was right and that their friendship was more important than what he initially thought was right. And that made it more impactful when he died. It also explained how he was so severely injured. Right. And and I and you could just hear the joy in Nathan's voice just before he died that he did come. You know, that Harold thought their friendship was more important. And it just was, oh, it was sad, but yeah, you're great. It was done very, very well. Because those are good points to make about that. But speaking of turning down the Secretary General's offer, Nico, the argument you made about not wanting the writers to go too sci-fi with the machine makes me feel like it didn't move itself, because that it was intercepted by Greer's company or another force. Because I think if the machine was safe and not in the wrong hands, it would have not called Root at the very end of the episode. In addition, I have a working crackpot theory that the reason why we didn't see the government baddie that had Hirsch kill the Secretary General is that, because we know it's a woman, she is Finch's ex-fiance. Again, that's a very loose theory. Could be really crazy and out there. And with that, I just I guess I'll just give you more details on how it will work out or not work when person of interest returns for an exciting third season that I'm incredibly pumped up for in the fall. So, Nico, to wrap things up on person of interest for this year, what's your thoughts on my crackpot theories? And what do you think is going to come our way in the third season? Can they just bring us home with your thoughts on the second season of person of interest as a whole? Yeah, Dan, I am going to disagree with your idea of Greer maybe or somebody intercepting the machine. I okay. think it did move itself in that it made it, it faked the voices of the people that, you know, faked the voices by the attor okay. attorney general or secretary general 
guy and then it made itself get moved and nobody knows where it went and this way it ultimately saved itself but not in a super sci-fi way where it like built itself into okay. a movable machine it still made humans move it but it was done secretively and against the government's wishes so it's right. out there and alive i think why it contacted root is because it recognized Root as a like-minded person as Finch, just maybe she's more extreme. And so it connected with her and wants to learn more from her. And so I think it's using her as a possible counterbalance to Finch. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how it continues to contact her and what it gets from that. Is it, is it kind of like the machine's first introduction to evil? It didn't no. know evil before? Okay. I think I don't think I think it's tapped into that part of root that we are sympathetic to her okay. her genuine interest in setting the machine free it realized she had the best interests of the machine in mind so then it began to trust her or or not trust right. her but like see her as a good person who's going about it in the wrong way maybe and so I think now that she doesn't have to kill it to set it free will interact with her and she will be a better person for it or be a better character for it. So she may become a redeemed villain. Possibly. Possibly. Okay. I'm not going to guarantee that yet. I could also see the machine working against Reese and Finch at some points next season as well because of their connection, the machine's connection with Root. I don't see it going that way. Okay. I don't think so because I think it believes in the mission of the persons of interest. Okay. I could see it not giving numbers if they f if it felt that it had gone they had strayed from the mission and but okay. I don't see it I don't see it going that route either. I could also see it trying to protect Root. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I definitely think so. And if government agents tried to come and kill her or something like that, it would warn her and get her out. Yeah. So now your crazy crackpot theory of the ex-fiance, I like the theory, but I don't think it's right. <laughs> okay. I think yeah. it's too out there. I just find it's weird that they kept her hidden. Yeah, I, I agree too, but I think that's to set up something for next season. Okay. I don't think it's going to be the ex-fiance. I just don't think she has Boy. the resources or the right background, you know? Unless it's explained through flashbacks somehow. Well, uh, they're going to have to explain it no matter who it is through, right. through some flashbacks. It's going to be a shocker, whoever it is. Yeah. You this... know, it also could be Reese's fiance that got killed or love interest that got killed. But well, I don't know. That's a little strange. Once too. again, she's not the right kind of person to right. be, you know? Yeah, I, don't I know. just don't see it. But ultimately, second season was amazing. This yeah. took an amazing first season and just jumped it up and increased the intensity and just really a good, good thing. It really made the show even more thought provoking than it was on the first season. Yeah, I think we had more intense discussions this season than we did in the first season, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I, I can't wait to talk about it next year. I'm looking forward to it. Agreed. It great stuff. So let's move on to talking about a show that we always love, getting our minds blown with crackpot theories every week. Uh, with an excellent episode written by one of my favorite graphic novel writers, Neil Gaiman, titled Nightmare in Silver. <laughs> One of the Doctor's oldest enemies returned when he and Clara visit Hedgework's World of Wonders for a holiday. I love Neil Gaiman. 
He's one of my favorite yes. novelists and TV screenwriters out there. So that being said, we'll get this out of the way right away. Nightmare in Silver is no The Doctor's Wife. Uh-uh. It's so far removed tonally and conceptually that a direct comparison is unfair to this episode. Though that makes it no less hard to dismiss. Don't get me wrong, Nightmare in Silver still stands up as a solid, if a little underwhelming, return of one of whose most iconic and timeless villains, the Cybermen. In every series of Doctor Who, there must be at least one or two encounters with some old school foes, the standards being the Daleks and the Cybermen. The showrunners feel obligated to include them, everyone wants to do something cool and new with the iconic creaky old foes, yet no one wants to rock the boat too much or depart from the past elements of the characters or foes, you know, too much. The main struggle is that no matter what the writer and character designers do, it's a little hard to make large slow hunks of metal feel truly terrifying nowadays with so many other threats out there and possibilities out there. So I'll give credit to Neil Gaiman because he came as close as anyone could to making the Cybermen scary again. This episode explored a familiar character from the Who universe in a completely new way by letting us look into the cheeky and cruel mind of the Cyber Planner as it struggled for control of the Doctor's mind. Throw in the fact that the Cybermen were taking advantage of, quote, patches to continually upgrade themselves to resist attack, and we had ourselves some Cybermen plus. Dan, I enjoyed this episode, but felt it didn't live up to the Doctor's Wife episode last series. Did you enjoy Neil Gaiman's return to the Doctor Who universe? Were the Cybermen sufficiently scary enough to make it worth doing another Cybermen episode this week? And did you like being inside the Doctor's mind and getting a glimpse inside the mind of the Cyber Planner? Well, first of all, I can't get enough of the Cybermen. Okay. It's a scary idea. It creeps me out. It does. Does it get old? And with them having super speed, holy crap, that was scary. Um, I, you just, the Cybermen and the dogs, it's just those classic, iconic villains that you just love to have on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, these are Doctor Who's Lex Luthor and the Joker here. Yeah. So you get them, you're going to be excited. It's always a big episode to me when they show up. The thing with Neil Gaiman, though, is everything he does, he tries to do different. Mm-hmm. That's just how his imagination works. So I was glad to see that this episode was very different from the Doctor's Wife because that's just his style. And this was very cerebral. That's his his thing. I don't know if you've ever read anything with the Sandman, but those stories are very cerebral, the, the chess match inside the Doctor's head. Classic Neil Gaiman. Yes, very much but, so. So I had to smile because it was great. I mean, it's just, that's his thing. It was great. Maybe he tried to do too much, and Moffat did say that he had a concern about that when he writes his scripts, because he's more of a comic book writer, and so he writes his scripts that way, and it's kind of tricky to get it all calmed down and pieced together and worked out. Cause so I think they did the best they could with that. But regardless, I had a good time with it. I mean, Cyberman and Amusement Park, that's fun. I mean, maybe they could have done more, but you only have so much time. And this was a lot of fun. And I was glad to see the Doctor use old school techniques of how they dealt with the Cyberman as well. Because this episode, like by using the golden ticket on the implant to hold off the Cyber Planner when it was in his head. Um, I think the idea of using gold or different types of metal or substances against them was a throwback to older episodes. So that was cool. That was fun. I liked that. Okay. Now, Dan, one of the things that really did not work for me, and by that I mean I could not stand them, was the children. We talked last week about how you usually enjoy when the Doctor interacts with children. Was that the case this time, or did you find them as annoying and poorly acted as I did this week? Yeah, you know, they did it so well in that Christmas special. Yeah. That was like the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I don't know what happened here. I don't know if that was Neil Gaiman didn't really want the children in the episode because they were kind of stuck with them because of the way the week before ended. 
Because it seemed like he brushed them off, off to the side rather quickly, didn't you think? Yeah, very much so. And we really kind of didn't care what happened. I mean, it's terrible to say, but really, did it matter? No. And, and maybe that should have come from maybe Clara getting more upset with that, what happened to them. I don't know. But again, she really didn't know until the end. Right. So I, I don't know. they kind of made a joke out of it, I thought. Yeah, I felt like last week it was almost hastily added on. So I thought maybe it yeah. was because Gaiman had put them into this episode. But he sort of neglected them as well. So maybe it was just something that was forced upon them both of those the writers and it was just a theme that really wanted to be put in i don't know i think what really didn't work for me was the actual acting ability of the children yeah. maybe they just did a poor casting and that's a problem because they could be reoccurring characters right because we all know that with the companions extended family a lot of them stick around quite a bit right brian was a great addition last year yeah and we loved it. And, you know, Rose's mom and Mickey were amazing in series right. one and two. Right. I know. So, yeah, I think it was just really poor acting on the, the point of the part of these two kids. And maybe that'll get better in additional episodes if they do come back. Or maybe they will see the hate that everybody's giving it and be like, OK, we're going to scrap that idea. Well, it's, it's especially the oldest girl. Yeah. She annoying, was kind of annoying. Annoying. Yeah. Because the doctor should have just yelled at her, you are annoying. <laughs> moved on. But how? You know. While I could not stand the children this week, the adults put on an acting yes. seminar. Warwick Davis brought a solid mix of understated drama and humor to his Porridge character that I absolutely love. Bring well, him back, please. Absolutely. While Matt Smith was given one of his weightiest, most complex scripts to date, playing polar opposite sides of the same Time Lord coin, and he delivered with a captive back and forth that never slipped into campiness. Jenna Louise Coleman is also coming along in the comedy department as she had two great interchanges. Natty Longshoe's Comical Castle. Real castle? Drawbridge? Moat? Yes, but comical. We'll go there. I trust the doctor. You think he knows what he's doing? I'm not sure I'd go that far. So, Dan, do you agree that the great Warwick Davis gave an excellent performance as the Emperor in hiding this week? Also, were you equally impressed by Jenna and Matt this week as well, as they both had moments of brilliance in this week's episode? Well, you know, Warwick Davis is a hardcore sci-fi fan. Yes. A huge sci-fi fan. He's you know, Star Wars fan, just like us. So he had to love every moment of being on this show and he gave it his all. Okay, that's a big thing for Stephen Moffat. He's really into hiring people that are excited about the TARDIS, that are fans of the show. You know, they want to see the TARDIS. They want to meet Matt Smith and his doctor. They want to just engross themselves with the world. Because I'm sure Warwick, Warwick Davis wanted to do that. God, he just brought out a brilliant performance in this episode. Jenna Louise Coleman is getting better every week. I liked how they had her as the leader of the platoon, where she was kind of in this military take charge role. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of cool. Okay, it's cool to see how she can hold her own pretty well. Because other companions in the past would have been able to do that. So that's cool. And it was fun seeing her uh, you know, fire off the big weapons and things like that. Little Rose throwback there. Yeah. So that was kind of fun as well. But then Matt Smith, what can you say? He's outstanding as some said. With the switching the personalities and how evil he got as an evil version of the doctor. Yes. He just had to have a blast doing it. It was great. And God, they did an interview with him during one of the commercials. And they, you know, made a big deal as, you know, Matt, you know, you've got to do something really complex. You've got to do something really big to show the switch between the doctors. And he's like, why do I need to do that? I'll just do this shoulder move. And it's so much simpler to explain that to people. And I thought that was a brilliant idea on his part as well. Yeah. The way he did it was 
was perfect. It worked and you could tell. And because when the cyber planner came back, sometimes you couldn't necessarily tell it kind of like just slipped in there. That was amazing too. But when the doctor had to wrestle control away, you could always tell. And that was a lot of fun. And I love the fact that they just had Jenna just keep slapping Matt. Yes. He was like, ow, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Well, that was what made it kind of um, intense in the episode because you didn't know who was in control at some points. Exactly. And they kept you in the dark and that was fun as well. But yeah, loved it. Great stuff. Mm -hmm. Finally, once again, I could complain about the overly quick wrap up in the last five minutes where in unfortunately classic Doctor Who click your heels together miracle style, it was revealed that Porridge was actually the emperor hiding away from his role in destroying the galaxy during the cyber wars. He was able to activate the bomb to implode the planet and he was also able to rescue everyone and teleport them to a safe location. Yes, the crisis was magically solved in the last five minutes, but it was still done well enough for me to enjoy the episode. I do still yearn for for the days of two-parter episodes when we had time to watch things build up be terrifying and then get solved but that's not how this season was set up it was these big giant one-shot movie style blockbuster episodes so going into that you know that's the way it's going to be you're going to have these quick wrap-ups occasionally Next week's episode is the Series 7 finale, and it'll bring back Madame Vastra, Strax, and Jenny, plus River Song! At, at her grave, yeah. as the trailer showed. It would be wonderful to see her again, even if she's being set up for heartbreak when she discovers her husband has a new girlfriend, and we saw her tombstone in the previews for next week, so that could be sad as well. So Dan, what were your thoughts on the wrap-up this week? Did it work, or was it too hasty? What are you most excited to see in the next week's finale? Vastra, Strax, and Jenny, or River Song? Anything I missed you wanted to talk about? I like all of them coming back. Yes. I'm excited about all of them coming back. Because as we said, we like the development of those side characters. Yes, very all much. All of them. So that's great stuff. But they kind of did toy with the notion, is the Doctor in love with Clara or not? So that's going to be interesting when River comes into the play. Because he's really, I think he may have to decide on that. Yeah. Or make up some kind of a decision. Again, I don't know if Clara will know, but we, because the audience, we have an idea about his feelings for Clara compared to River. I will see. Come in. I think it'll be interesting to hear some aftermath stuff regarding um, Amy and Rory. And how that's going to come back to haunt the Doctor as well. Because <laughs> yeah. we know they've got to be brought up. Yeah, and I think the River Song story will actually be a way to push the Clara and Doctor story down the road a little bit because it's it's building up and we almost feel like it's time for them to address it. And in classic TV fashion, this will be a way to kick that can down the road a little bit so that him being upset about River Song's passing or – that's an assumption on my part. But we see the, the gravestone, so maybe something in that happens or – she's involved and it ultimately sends him into not a a complete depressive cycle but it really upsets him and maybe breaks his heart a little bit so he's not at a point where he's ready for something new with clara so even though there's that attraction it's going to kick it down the road and push us into mid-season eight before that happens right so that that'll be interesting i think it'll be a good way to handle it all right well that's all i've got great episode can't wait for next week's gonna be good stuff. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to next week. And unfortunately, it's the season finale. You know, feels yeah. like we just started talking about this, but I'm I'm really excited. Great. Well, Neil Gaiman, hope you come back again. Warwick Davis, hope you come back again. Indeed. Uh, 
that's all she wrote with that one. All right. Yeah, let's move into the rundown. Sci-Fi's powerful Mondays, FX, and USA. Characters welcome. EMT, we know trauma. And kick things off with Sunday night with the Family Guy episode that was actually surprised that they killed off a pretty regular side character oh. in the episode Save the Clam. After Horace dies, the guys try to save the drunken clam. Anybody who attended university had that underage bar they liked to frequent before they were legal and could get into better places. At the University of Notre Dame in the 90s and up until 2003, when it was finally shut down, that bar was the Boat Club. Known for $2 pitchers of watered-down beer and drunk underclassmen that didn't know any better, and upperclassmen nostalgic for the fun they had when they were underclassmen, it was during my junior year that the bar was raided by the Indiana Excise Police and eventually shut down early in our senior year. This is all a way of saying that the bar-related nostalgia and defense of tradition in Save the Clam managed to strike a chord with me once I blocked out all the racial jokes, gay jokes, and the women jokes that never really landed in this episode. That's a pretty standard way to appreciate anything that Family Guy does these days, tuning out the deliberately provocative jokes as though they're comments made by an older relative at Thanksgiving who gets a pass because they grew up in a different time. Family Guy doesn't have that excuse, so when the material doesn't work because it trades on lazy stereotypes, it sort of hurts the episode. But still, I laughed more this week at the remaining bits than usual because of my connecting the clam to the boat club. The Drunken Clam is no Cheers or Moe's. It's not going to inspire much sympathy as a location, but it does inspire a nice last hurrah celebration from Quagmire Joe and especially Peter, who drunkenly recounts all the times he missed out on important events in the lives of Homer Simpson's children, probably the best We Copied Simpsons joke the show has ever made. Ultimately, a middling episode that was made better for me because of making a personal connection and some nostalgic longing for my college years. Now let's move on to a pretty decent episode, a very Mo-centric episode, as we talk about the Simpsons episode, Whiskey Business. Mo finds a new leaf on life when rich venture capitalists take an interest in his homemade whiskey. Then Grandpa injures himself while babysitting Bart and quickly discovers he prefers being cared for by his grandson than the staff at the nursing home. Also, Lisa takes exception to a Tupac at Coachella style hologram called Jazz Legend Bleeding Gums Murphy because Sonny Rollins appears to ask her not to boycott the record label. Give the Simpsons credit for still being topical. This week's episode reflected a headline from just a couple days ago, Rate of Suicide side jumps among baby boomers. That demographic group certainly includes bartender Mo Sislak, who keeps a length of rope called Noosey in his storeroom. In Whiskey Business this week, we learn that he's been obsessed with killing himself for years, but a lucky accident prompts Homer, Marge, Carl, and Lenny to help turn his life around. Temporarily, of course. Whiskey Business just bangs on the one note of Mo being so depressed he can't even muster the energy to end it all. An episode that actually depicted a suicide would at least win points for going to the extremes, though at the same time I find the comedic aspect of suicide in this episode greatly disturbing, and really how flippantly they deal with such a serious situation and topic was disturbing. The episode starts with Mo literally sending cries of help to Homer and the rest of the bar patrons. Tired of being ignored, he stands on a chair and slips the noose around his neck, but he pauses when when he glimpses a sign for the suicide hotline. 
Unfortunately, the new Buzz Cola Suicide Hotline is nothing but a voice menu system that plays an easy listening version of Suicide is Painless, the theme from MASH. This is bad enough, but then the bartender gets another prank phone call from Bart asking for Mo Ron. The enraged Mo accidentally kicks his chair away and comes close to hanging himself, but Homer saves his life with CPR performed to the beat of the Bee Gees, How Deep Is Your Love? This Bee Gees joke was actually funny because Carl suggests, I think it's supposed to be staying alive, and Homer responds, no, that's too on the nose. Bart's B story is straight out of Sanford and Son, as Grandpa takes a tumble off the roof and makes his grandson play nursemaid while he lies in bed. At least Bart isn't being selfless here. He's hiding Grandpa in the basement instead of taking him to the hospital so that Homer and Marge don't find out that the accident happened when Bart was supposed to look after the old man. Lisa visits a jazz club and is appalled to see a hologram of Bleeding Gums Murphy, the blues musician she befriended in Moaning Lisa and who died in Round Springfield, one of the show's more ambitious efforts in attempting to deal with loss. She writes a letter of complaint to the She Done Left Me Records, threatening a boycott and girlcott of their catalog. The record company taunts her with a hologram of Sonny Rollins and the story just ends there. This episode had plenty of laughs, but unfortunately I just couldn't get past the flippant handling of the suicide topic and how much humor they tried to squeeze out of Moe's depressive attempts to take his own life. With that, we'll jump into Monday Night, where we're going to talk about an episode that had quite a twist in it that I was not expecting, with the How I Met Your Mother episode, Something Old. Robin is desperate to find her something old she buried in Central Park years earlier for the wedding. Meanwhile, Marshall and Lily ask for Ted's help packing for Italy. Can Barney bonds with Robin Sr.? Maybe we don't need the universe to tell us what we really want. Maybe we already know that deep down. For the last eight seasons of How I Met Your Mother, we've followed Ted Mosby as he's tried to find the one. We've watched him get his heart broken. We've watched him foolishly ruin relationship after relationship. One guiding principle of Ted's search has always been that he looks for signs from the universe, from a slutty pumpkin costume in a store window to his life flashing before his eyes after getting into a car accident. You see, the universe has a plan, and that plan is always in motion, he once told us. A butterfly flaps its wings and it starts to rain. It's a scary thought, but it's also kind of wonderful. All these little parts of the machine constantly working, making sure that you end up exactly where you're supposed to be, exactly when you're supposed to be there. That right place at the right time. In a single speech, Ted tossed all of that away. After watching Robin break down in front of him in tears over her belief that the universe was screaming that she wasn't meant to be with Barney, Ted stopped being the man who believed in signs. Throwing away nearly a decade's worth of looking for hints that he was on the right path, Ted tried to console Robin by telling her that the universe has better things to do than give us signs, that we should trust our own gut, and that deep down, she already knew what she wanted. Then Robin put her hand in Ted's and looked up at him. Let me just say, that was not the twist I was expecting in this episode. Even if we know that Ted and Robin don't end up together, there's still something there that makes them a perfect pair. I've seen a lot of fans cite the cruel ways Barney and Robin interact with each other, Barney's playbook proposal, Robin's fake calling off their engagement, as evidence of why they're perfect for each other. But would you want someone to be your soulmate for that reason? Or would you rather have a soulmate who's always there to comfort you even when they don't know why? For Robin, 
Finding the locket meant that the universe wanted her to marry Barney and that things would be okay. When she realized it was missing, Robin's hopes were shattered. So cue Ted's speech about the universe and signs mentioned before, and then cue Robin's taking Ted's hand in her hand. I hate to not focus much on Marshall and Lily's part of something old since they actually had a very touching story that also involved Ted and was really well done. So really great for Marshall and Lily's story. Remember when we said that the creators of the show said that next year's finale season would look very different? Well, I think I know one major difference. No more apartment. A place that has almost been a character itself looks like it's going to be gone for the series. For and are final we going to have limited amounts of Lily and Marshall as well? I think something's going to happen that it's going to bring them back into the story. Okay. That's my theory. But yeah, it could be it could be in the beginning decreased amounts of them. So where do we go next week, How I Met Your Mother? Are we going to see a successful Stinson Sherbatsky wedding? Will Robin get to the altar and realize that Barney isn't the person she's meant to be with, which is kind of what it hinted at early on when we saw the episode at the beginning of last season? Throwing the Ted Robin wrench into the How I Met Your Mother gears this late in the game is a bold move on the showrunner's part, especially since it looks like this part of the story had finally reached its conclusion last season. With next week's season finale titled Something New, are we right to think that Robin was Ted something old? And the mother will be his something new. Dan, how about your thoughts on this week's episode? That's what I'm going to say is going to happen. It's going to get really dark for Ted, though. Because I think they're going to have maybe one more relapse in their relationship with Ted and Robin. And I think Robin, something's going to happen where she ultimately goes with Barney. That they ultimately know that's the way it's going to go. And Ted's going to be left without her. He's going to get the shaft one more time. And then when he least expects it, that's when the mother's going to come and he's going to meet her. Because I think it's going to be him sitting on that that bench at the train station, called depressed because Robin's gone. And then the mother comes. Yeah. Because that's just it's 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 a classic romantic comedy where the character hits the lowest point, and then at the end the miracle comes in that makes them feel better or gets them out of that situation. So that's what that's going to be. Okay. So that's that's how I think it's going to go down. But there may be some business between Barney and Ted that they might have to get worked out because of this. Well, remember, we already saw the scene where both of them are having cold feet and Ted right. goes in and talks them both into it. So. But we don't know if that actually if that means they both walk down the aisle and then they're about to say I do and they both say I don't <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. So, But that that's where I'm going with is I just think it's going to be he's going to finally realize Robin is gone for good. Right. For Ted, and he's just going to be like, oh my god, what am I going to do? And then this comes, and there you go. So that's how I think it'll go down. We'll see. It's going to be emotional. Because I really think at that point also, Marshall and Lily are going to be leaving. So he's really going to feel alone. Yeah, so. yeah, very much so. I think you're right. So it's going to be a very dark moment for Ted Mosby, because then the ship's going to turn around. So that's what I think is going to happen. Okay. Well, now Michael will take over with the Revolution section and his review on this week's episode, The Love Boat. Thanks, Nico. Hey guys, Michael here to talk about this week's episode of Revolution, Season 1, Episode 16, The Love Boat. Right off the bat, I really enjoyed this episode a lot like I really enjoyed last week's episode. Now, granted, last week's episode, Home, a lot happened in that episode, and in my opinion, it was a little bit of a better episode, but The Love Boat is definitely a worthy successor, as we see right off the bat that Miles is still having a hard time with the death of Emma from last week. But not only that, 
Miles' problems really come to a head in this episode when he also finds out that Neville is his commanding officer for the Georgia Federation. Now, it's not only Miles that has a big problem with Neville. Obviously, everyone has a problem with Neville. Charlie has a problem with Neville because he kind of ordered the kill on Danny and kidnapped him and killed her father in the first place. So she probably has the most uh, anger and fury with the guy. But Jason is also having a lot of strife with his father in this episode. Basically telling him that, you're not my father. I don't really know who you are. In this episode, Neville and Miles have to work together to take control of a scientist named Dr. Stephen Camp. Now, he is from the Monroe Republic, and he was originally uh, weaponizing anthrax. However, the Georgia Federation intercepted him, and now they are taking him back to Georgia in order to weaponize the anthrax for them so that they can take on Monroe head-on. In order for uh, him to cooperate, they unfortunately had to take his family, uh, including his two children, which is kind of terrible because, I mean, it really leaves, leaves him with no other choice but to go with them and weaponize anthrax. So really, as we find out in this episode, Neville and Miles are doing the exact same thing that Monroe is doing and that Randall is doing and that they're trying to fight against. And obviously Neville's not really trying to fight against it as he enjoys it. He enjoys playing the tough general uh, that will be challenged by nobody. But Miles has been trying to get out of this since the pilot. We, we all know this, everyone who's been watching since the pilot, we've been able to see that Miles wants out. I mean, he, he tried to kill Monroe, it failed initially, and then he got out, he ran. But he's still working on leaving that life behind. I mean, the whole reason he took the uh, job for the Georgia Federation was so that he could command his own army again, his own unit, and not only have men to lead, but also to lead them into battle. That was ultimately his his real goal, because I don't think deep down he really wants to kill Monroe. I think he does now um, that Emma died because of him, but I think up until home, I don't know if he really ever wanted to kill Monroe. And I, I mean, obviously he wants him dead. He says he wants him dead. I don't know if he wants to be the one to deliver the blow. And quite honestly, I think if anyone's going to do that, it's going to be Charlie. That being said, I really like Charlie in this episode. Because when Neville and Miles were kind of torturing Dr. Camp and kind of threatening him about his family, she was done. She had enough. We're starting to see that moral side of Charlie, once again, that hasn't been around since the, uh, the mid-season finale, I believe, which is episode 10. And we finally got to see that again here, which I was very glad about because I think that was an important part of her character that we kind of missed. And if we are to make her a female version of Dean Winchester from Eric Kripke's other show, Supernatural, I think you really have to have that moral element in there that is set aside and set apart from all the badass that is the character. That being said, Charlie was a lot better in this episode. I liked that her, Nora, and Jason worked together to free Dr. Camp and to, um, and to save his family up until Monroe's uh, militiamen come and attack them. And then, of course, Neville tries to take control again, and he almost does, until he kind of whacks Charlie, and Miles gets ticked and takes a, 
Doesn't take Neville out, but takes him out of command for sure. Which was also a great scene. Back to the other plot line with Aaron and Rachel. Uh, they've been kind of walking for about three days, and they haven't had any food. So they kind of steal some from a, lo a local settlement while on their journey to the tower, which results in three men from the settlement being killed trying to retrieve it by Rachel. In the process, Rachel's leg is actually broken, and she begs Aaron, begs Aaron to leave without her to get to the tower because he'll know what to do. He has no idea what is going on. And when Rachel opens up the notebook she got a few episodes ago, it's it's revealed that Aaron is somehow a part of all of this, of all the nanites, the tower, the entire universe of revolution. He is somewhere, somehow fits into it because as we remember from before, he's kind of a software guru. He pioneered a software application while he was a student at MIT, which must be part of what they're using at the tower, I would assume, with the nanites. It makes sense based off of Ben giving Aaron the pendant in the pilot. Out of anyone he could have given it to, he gave it to Aaron. And it makes sense based off of him being in the notebook. Elsewhere at the tower, we see Grace again, who we haven't seen in a while, um, working on getting the elevators running to get back down to the uh, 13th floor, I believe it was. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I honestly do not remember the floor, but I do remember that the guard who goes down to test the elevator gets killed while on the 12th floor. And before he went, he chained Grace to the table so she couldn't run while he went to check it out. And then the elevator starts going out. And the episode actually ends with Grace coming face-to-face -face with this guy's killer. We don't see his face. We don't know who he is. But she is freaked out. She's scared out of her mind because she can't get out of these handcuffs. She's stuck where she is. And this killer is right in front of her. Overall, this was pretty much a fantastic episode. I I mean, like I said, last week's was better just from, for emotion value. This week's I really liked for action and story value. And I, I do think it really helped with my issues with Charlie uh, the last episode or two. And I'm, I'm glad that these, like, I mean, I've said this before, but I'm, gl I'm glad these are getting resolved um, in time and pretty fast. And we're seeing this progression with her character in a very similar way that we saw with uh, Sam Winchester's on Supernatural. Again, Eric Kripke created both shows. Uh, how could I not compare them? Because I, I do believe that this show, that Revolution, was supposed to be a version of Supernatural but in the real world without supernatural entities, with technology instead of supernatural. So that's my opinion on that subject matter. I'm really uh, interested to seeing why Aaron is so important. Again, he's one of my favorite characters on the show. I'm really excited. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I honestly don't know why he's that important. He apparently made this software, but we don't know what it's used for. So... Possibly, possibly, it could be used to control the nanites? I don't know. I don't really know. But I'm excited to find out. And that shadowy figure at the end that Grace comes to face, face to face with, I know this is utterly impossible because we watched him, we watched him die in the pilot, but it would be very interesting if it were Ben Matheson. I know it's not, 
In fact, I'm 100% positive it's not, but it'd be interesting. So, uh, guys, based off of that, I, I did like uh, Miles' redemption of his behavior in this episode at the end where he uh, defeated Neville. I look forward to seeing more of Neville because I really like uh, Giancarlo Esposito. His his role, how he plays Neville is just fantastic. It's exactly how the character is not only written, but how he should be played. So, props to the cast, props to the crew, props to the writers and directors. And, yeah, I'll see you guys next week uh, for episode 17 of Revolution, The Longest Day. Adios, guys. Uh, back to you, Dan Nico. Thanks, Michael. Now let's move on to the new sci-fi hit series, Defiance, with the episode, A Well-Respected Man. Kenya is among several people that are mysteriously abducted. Meanwhile, Rafe tries to determine who gave his dead son the golden device that may have led to the boy's death. After three straight episodes that were full of potential, but not the greatest or most consistent execution, I was starting to worry that Defiance would follow a similar trend all season long and disappoint me. Fortunately, the series seemed to find its footing a bit more with the fourth episode, A Well-Respected Man, featuring a stronger emphasis on characterization, which I've been clamoring for for the last three episodes. Along the way, shedding some much needed light on Mayor Rosewater, again, been saying we needed that, yes. and her troubled relationship with her sister, Kenya. It was easily the series' strongest episode yet in that regard. Yes, in that regard. Good stuff. Until now, Mayor Rosewater really hasn't had any interesting qualities to speak of. She's probably the most genuinely good person in Defiance, but that alone doesn't really make for interesting storytelling. This episode didn't necessarily reveal any glaring character flaws or foibles, but it did at least showcase a bit of her tragic history and what influence that might have on her present situation. I like the revelation that she manufactured a false death for her mother and a false saint in order to protect her younger sister. It's clear now that if Amanda is a squeaky clean leader, she only achieves it by force of will. And the fact that she was willing to make a deal with the devil, as it were, by allowing Daytac into the city council shows that she isn't above sacrificing the greater good for personal matters, at least when it comes to her sister. Likewise, Kenya was the source of some interesting drama and character growth this week. This was the first real chance to see her outside of the brothel setting and showing some real emotion. This episode also seemed to be setting up some future tension in terms of their relationship that's the sisters, both with the love triangle between them and Sheriff Nolan and the almost certainty that their mother will show up alive and well in defiance somewhere down the road. This episode offered a somewhat more nuanced portrayal of Daytac as well, and his role with the city's power structure. As the title suggests, much of his own turmoil revolves around the respect he craves and struggles so hard to receive. It's obvious he certainly didn't get it before coming to Earth, and even as the head of one of the two richest families in Defiance, it's still a precious commodity to him. One of the more effective scenes of the week came as Daytac escorted Sheriff Nolan through the town, reminding him that information, not intimidation, is a lawman's most essential tool. Daytac is becoming a fairly sympathetic character now, despite the fact that we know he isn't above executing the weak and capitalizing on the suffering of others. There's also the reveal that his wife, Stama, might well be the true power behind the throne. Her role this week was small, but very effective. And I gotta say, I'm actually liking Jamie Murray in a, in a show. This is a better villain. They wrote a better villain for her. Yeah. 
Yes. Finally, it's worth noting that this episode showed a distinct Greek mythological influence. There was the reveal that the bioman from the pilot is named Ulysses, but more significant was Kenya's hallucination of being trapped in a labyrinth, complete with an alien version of a minotaur. These little elements were a nice touch. However, I would have liked to see more of the labyrinth hallucination and more thematic ties to the plot and its resolution. I suppose it could be argued that the pendant was like the spool of wire was for Theseus, it was ultimately Kenya's means of escaping her nightmare, after all. Still, more could have been done in that area. Overall, I was very pleased to see some significant improvement with the writing this week. I was equally pleased to see an episode that made more effective use of the show's limited special effects budget and actually looked fantastic this week. I thought the maze was very well done. Hopefully this week is a sign of things to come over the next two months as this series goes forward. So Dan, what about your thoughts on this week's Defiance? I was really glad we got to see Julie Benz be the major player that she's supposed to be on the show. I think that was a big thing. I'm glad we got more background on the mayor and her character. Because interesting me getting better. So that's good. Jamie Murray, yes, played a good villain here. Really like that. Um, they're making her much more subtle villain. Making me think that some of the warehouse issues we had with her as a villain on that show might have been a little bit of the writing. So that's an interesting point. As for the show as a whole, the episodes keep getting progressively better. But I think with it being based on a video game, which I think is a first-person shooter, I haven't checked it out yet, I feel like this show should have a little bit more action. Okay. That's just me. Because a video game is such an action-based thing. Because if you're trying to tie that to that, I think fans of the game are going to be expecting that action with the show. And there really hasn't been since the pilot. Right. So that's the that's the only thing that's really hurting it. You know, we need, we need to have a shootout soon. With Nolan and a couple guys or something like that. So that that's the only thing I really think it needs. Again, I'm intrigued with the show. Can I have a lot of questions about it? That still keeps me out of watching. But they better be careful about how many questions they leave open. Because they may begin to frustrate people. Okay. Yeah. But every week they're improving on that. So I can't complain much there. Okay. With that, I think it's about time to move on to another sci-fi show with the excellent episode of Warehouse entitled Parks and Rehabilitation. While Artie tries to get back to work, Pete and Claudia investigate an environmental group that may be tied to an artifact got a murder. To sum this up, episode up real quick, get a review because high purposes. Basically, what I want to say with this is the rehabilitation part, the Parks and Rehabilitation plotline that this title is after, involved a guy that basically used an artifact that could bury people underground. And with that, I have to say, it was basically a generic, I thought, warehouse case for Claudia and Pete to deal with. Um, nothing really special there. The only thing that did stand out was the the activists that Pete and Claudia were helping out, kind of helping Claudia deal with her issues, was stabbing Artie and the reasoning behind doing that. Um, that was some good stuff. That was some great character development with Claudia. Also, I really like at seeing how the warehouse places its objects with that room with the, what would you call it, Nico? Almost like a sorting room. Yeah, like a sorting room with the, the Chinese calligraphy and everything like that. Uh, telling the warehouse workers what shelves to place certain items. That was really cool. I liked that. I liked how that tied to Steve's character, Steve's Jig's character. Kind of how that all worked and his you know, belief in Buddhism. Finally, they explained a purpose to why Lena was at the warehouse. Because Nico and I have been scratching our heads for years. Why Lena was around and why the character was around. And it's amazing and really interesting how we're fighting about more about the character. Because seeing her purpose more so after she's dead than when she was alive. Yeah. So that's kind of weird. Kind of odd. That actress, I would think, left the show because... She was ticked off about being underused. 
but that's just me. I'm not sure. So what'd you make of the episode, Nico? Yeah, I really liked the Pete and Claudia mashup or team up this week. Yeah, I do like that. I thought that was good. Yeah, you're right. The, the main part of this episode was just kind of a standard run-of-the-mill warehouse tag and bag, you know? Yeah. But I thought the Micah and Jinx trying to help Artie was a better opportunity than maybe Claudia would have had. And yes. so I liked Pete and Claudia going out and doing their thing out in the field while Jinx and Micah worked on helping Artie. And we know that Artie's going to take a long time to get over what he did. Even though he's not being blamed, he still blames himself. And so like, I thought that aspect of this episode was very well done and I really enjoyed that. I also, I think everything with Claudia and Artie at the end was very well tied up. The only thing I think would have made it even better was her actually saying something to Artie. But I think the unspoken I love you that kind of went between them was more their style. So it kind of worked that way. Although I kind of would have liked to hear it, you know, <laughs> or her to be yeah. say something about him being her dad or essentially being her dad. And so that was the one thing that I thought was eh, maybe missing or maybe I just would have liked to see. But ultimately, I can't complain because I enjoyed watching this episode. And yeah, pretty standard stuff, but still good. Standard is good yeah. on this show. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. Good call. All right. Well, with that, we're going to move on to Tuesday nights with another sitcom. That's always a lot of fun. New Girl. Yeah, with the pretty hilarious day after episode, Winston's birthday. Jess's father, played by Rob Reiner, visits at an inopportune time, forcing Nick to spend time alone with him. Meanwhile, Jess gets a new job opportunity. Schmidt deals with his feelings about Elizabeth. Can Winston expect a surprise birthday party? But no one remembers to throw up. Picking up the morning after Nick and Jess's steamy night of passion, this week's new girl turned down the heat with an ill-timed pop-in from Jess's father, Bob, played once again by Rob Reiner. Here, Bob and Nick spent some quality bonding time together as Nick tried to tiptoe around the subject of last night's escapades. This made for some fun interplay between Nick and Bob, including Nick's description of the anti-Jess, who is apparently named Yolanda Winston. Let us not forget that Bob still consistently refers to Winston as Wilson, so it had that added bonus of hilarity. And while Bob and Nick were hanging out doing guy stuff, Jess had found herself a new teaching gig, which turned out to be a less than stellar substitute position. While the actual classroom scenes weren't all that entertaining, it was amusing to see Jess frantically balance this new job and preparing for Cece's wedding. I especially enjoyed Jess's stern talking to over the phone with Cece's uncle. Sure, you son of a bitch. You little son of a bitch. It is not your day! Meanwhile, Schmidt was having his own problems with Elizabeth and confronting his feelings for her. Schmidt dealt with his initial embarrassment to be seen with Elizabeth out in public. This arc was pretty easily resolved, perhaps too easily, but it did feature some humorous scenes, particularly near the end with Schmidt donning his frog it about it sweatshirt and busting a move with Elizabeth at the restaurant. 
And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Winston's birthday, which sadly everyone completely forgot about. In a way, this arc felt like an acknowledgement to the audience, sort of a wink, if you will, at the character's habit of getting pushed to the sidelines time and again. As most of us well know, Winston often gets the short end of the stick when it comes to balancing the episodic narrative. But here, it was played to comedic effect as he kept trying to convince himself that his friends had planned him a super secret surprise party. This was made even funnier by the fact that he was dressed in Eddie Murphy's skin-tight delirious suit half the time. Ultimately, this is a funny episode. Not as laugh-out-loud hilarious as some of the ones we've had in the past couple weeks, but still pretty funny. I think it was more of a setup for next week's finale, which will probably be rip-roaring hilarious. Yes, and with that, we're going to move on to a show that's just moved to Tuesday night. Because I think it's doing pretty well there. Yeah, it's had a pretty good first two weeks on Tuesday, improving upon all the shows that were in it previous and improving upon its Friday night numbers. So really good move for Grimm to Tuesday night. We're going to talk about the episode Kiss of the Muse. Nick tries to clear the air with Juliet during a dinner date, but their efforts may be futile when a Wesson with the ability to influence humans can harm them goes after him. So it finally happened. Nick and Juliet have seemingly overcome Juliet's memory loss with the added bonus of breaking an unbreakable Musai's spell slash poisoning because their love is just so epic and strong and all that crap. Kiss of the Muse even carried the added bonus of Juliet flashing back to the original I See Animal People speech, handedly eliminating the need to rehash that part of Nick's life again, thankfully. Well, hopefully. Because melodramatic reveals are just so melodramatic, and the memory loss thing forestalled a proper presentation of the repercussions of Juliet's knowing these particulars of Nick's night job. I'm ready to see that, and I think we'll go there next week as the Vessen in Team Grimm show themselves to Juliet. I hope it means she becomes less of a delicate flower slash damsel in distress, and maybe actually joins the story and the action for once. Kiss of the Muse was the rare Grimm episode where the case of the week actually intertwined with a major aspect of the overall season story, or even intertwined with the story at all. The result was a pleasantly cohesive story that never felt like it was trying to fill time with a random Vessen encounter that might never matter again in the long run. Nick's encounter with Chloe became the catalyst that finally brought him and Juliet back together, but tucked within the good stuff that ultimately came out of this case, there's also the potential for bad stuff. Since Nick and Juliet were forced to quickly resolve their differences under pressure to dispel the Maasai's influence, there's always the risk that they move too quickly and that there are still aspects of their relationship that need to be properly properly discussed before they're able to completely move forward. Plus, there was the rather odd decision for Renard to let Chloe go at the end of the episode. Sure, he was menacing and he pulled out his scary Zuberbeast face and threatened to dish out some hurt if she ever returned to Portland, but that doesn't mean that she won't. And finally, we have Juliet reintroduced to the Vesson world, for better or worse. Ideally, her knowledge should offer her some level of protection simply because she knows there's a lot of weird stuff out there. But then again, this is Juliet, and Aunt Marie warned Nick that Juliet would always be in danger as long as he kept her around. Next week is our penultimate episode of Season 2, and we haven't seen or heard from Adelaide in the Royals in a while, nor do we have any indication that they'll be back next week or the week after, though I'm sure we'll get at least something. I hope their return is worth the wait, and I'm looking forward to next week. Like I said, a decent episode I was a little annoyed with, but it ultimately redeemed itself in the end. So with that, we're going to move on to Wednesday night and everybody's favorite CW show, Arrow, with the episode Darkness on the Edge of Town.
the Dark Archer visits a seismologist to further the undertaking. Meanwhile, Laurel makes a decision after Tommy tells her the truth. Can Roy and Thea try to find the hood? In flashback, Friars tells the captive. The first discussion point of the episode, Darkness on the Edge of Town, is about Oliver finding out everything both from Moira and Malcolm. Now, Nico, what did you think about the, the first part of the epic showdown between Oliver and Malcolm, Moira getting left by Walter, and Team Aaron now being back on the same page and seeing them working together on the field? Yeah, I'm going to start with that third point first, because I really enjoyed this assault on Merlin Financial or Merlin's Global or whatever they call the company. Mar- Mar- Merlin Glo- Global Group, which we still don't okay. know what 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 they do, but apparently that's not relevant when I ask people. <laughs> yeah, global uh, Merlin Global Group. That was fun seeing Felicity in you know doing her hacking stuff in there. Oliver getting all kinds of mixed up in different discussions and everything, trying to stall, but then trying to back her up, and then also ultimately it just looking like it's just about to go absolutely wrong, and then Dig comes in and saves the day. A lot of fun. I really enjoyed this part of the episode i thought it was really fun to see and it kind of makes me want to see her out in the field a little bit more even though every time it happens something goes terribly wrong <laughs> so it's fun now i was i was almost blindsided by walter serving moira with diver- divorce papers i thought he was going to stick around and try and figure out what was going on as almost a inside man and trying to like figure out what's going on but he decided he needed to get away from her and keep safe but i don't think it's going to be permanent i think that something's going to happen to bring them back together or at least that's what i'm hoping for and I was a little disappointed by the showdown between Oliver and Malcolm only because Malcolm sort of kicked Oliver's ass, you know, again. again. And I thought it would have been a little bit better of a fight. Ultimately, Oliver was going to lose, I think, because it wasn't time yet for him to win. But him to be beaten so mercilessly and then captured was a little bit of a surprise. And made that bow rest in peace. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Damn, Malcolm Merlin has some strong hands, don't he? Yeah. Well, I, I I was not surprised by Walter, you know, filing for divorce because and I was this was something that people on Twitter was uh, saying. I, there was a lot of people on Twitter that night that said this that Walter still is one of the smartest characters on that show because by divorcing her because he realized we're still stuck in this situation that that I was in before I got kidnapped and it's not apparently something's going on between her and Malcolm. You know what? I'm not gonna be a part of it. So I I understand why he left her and this could be a hint that he. He might survive after the finale next week. If because personally, I fi- and it, I hate to say it because I love Susanna, I love Moira, but I think she's a goner. I think she's gonna get killed by Malcolm in some form or fashion. And uh, no, and actually, you know, while you were disappointed with the showdown, the, the first round of that showdown, I felt felt it was epic. It was it really you know started hype up a lot of more things for the finale, which will air just in a few days now. I I can agree with you with one point though. You kind of expect that Oliver after let's see, it's been almost thirteen episode since they last met do you kind of expect that he would be a bit more experienced now and more trained because it was you know it was a bit equal but at the same time it was almost like re-watching years end but in a different scenario different choreography and so on but you know what i think we'll get that big showdown last next week if you've seen trailer and so on and once again may that bow rest in peace when you're done with this episode please have a moment of silence for that, for that bow and <laughs> that and also i agree with you nico i love seeing team arrow working together so it was felicity i think she was the best part of it Uh, seeing her being you know a big belly burger deliver and you know (laughs) seeing her being escorted out by diggle as being one of malcolm merlin's beep 
Uh, and um, so yeah it was fun and I hope we get to see more of that in season 2 especially now moving on to the island we got to see what happened to Team Island this week since since they got kidnapped and Nico what did you feel about the death of Yao Fei and who do you think that woman was that we saw in the flashback sitting by the desk ultimately it was not that surprising that they killed Yao Fei after he did confess to shooting down the the commercial airliner because if they didn't there then later he could be like no it wasn't me it was these people so it makes sense that they killed him it was still a little bit shocking because you know it was a little early on i thought to see the end of him but it's about the right time and it's about time for us to understand why oliver becomes who he is you know and so we're seeing that transformation and i think that it was about time for that his mentor we're kind of calling yao fei his mentor even though more of his training and stuff is coming from his daughter and from slade wilson so yeah you know it was about that time for that to happen now as for the woman in the flashback i i don't have an idea yet i not one that i want to throw out there yet i just don't know enough about it well i think it was a red queen no sorry wrong show wrong show you for a second I thought Moira no it can't be her but uh, but yeah it's a mystery but I hope we get to find it out next week but going back to Yao Fei is you know because I've been reading spoilers we I knew that somebody was going to die in this episode because they said that somebody will die before the finale so I but I wasn't I, I kind of guessed it was going to be Yao Fei but I actually thought maybe it would because they said it's going to be somebody that we've seen since the beginning and Yao Fei was p- pretty much part of the beginning so I he, he was one of the candidates but I actually thought it could have been maybe Walter or Moira but um you know, you're right, Nico. There's not much to say about it because I think his character has fulfilled his arc, basically, you know, because they can't keep going back and forth being, you know, a good guy and then a bad guy and a good guy and a bad guy. So, but overall, I love this actor. I love this character, you know, seeing how complicated he was. So, yeah, but like like you said, it was about time. Now, some fast tidbits before we wrap this up. The first meeting between Roy Harper and Oliver Queen that resulted with Roy and Fia breaking up because of the search of the hood, as well as Thomas continuing search towards darkness as he sees Oliver. Oliver and Laurel make out. What did you feel about those things, Nico? I liked this first interaction between Roy Harper and Oliver Queen. I was a little shocked that it actually broke up Roy and Thea, but I, you know, that's temporary, of course. Uh, that's too good of a story and too good of a relationship to keep them broken up for too long. But I do think it was good. I'm hoping that Roy Harper and Green Arrow meet again in the finale so that we can start that story arc going forward. I think it's going to happen been soon i don't know if it's this season or if it's going to be early next season but i am hoping sooner rather than later i think we're just about on perfect timing for Tommy's continued path towards becoming that villain. Ultimately, I think it's when Oliver kills his father that it's going to make that final, you know, it's going to be that final straw. And he's going to find out his father was evil, but it's not going to matter. At this point, Oliver's going to have taken everything from him, and including Laurel. So I think that's going to be what ultimately drives him to become Merlin. Now, the relationship between Oliver and Laurel, I was a little confused or a little blindsided by how quickly it moved and how they ended up in bed together but i guess it's a good thing and sex not is always a good, a good thing, thing for the most most times well i think <laughs> if, i don't know if it's good in this sense because it happened so fast and now that means they have to pump the brakes and like go their separate ways and be like oh it was such a mistake and all this stuff and uh all that relationship drama that is going on it's not it's too early for them to be together and for it to work so i think 
it means that we're going to see some falling out between them. So I don't know. In a sense, I, I, I liked it. You know, obviously, we're all shipping for these two to get together in the end. But I do think it was maybe a little bit early. Yes, I was torn between that aspect as well because they, they got close last week and they got closer this week. And I felt like, you know, it feel, but in a way, it kind of feels like a payoff for us as the fans because, you know, we Laura and Oliver, they, if we compare to who has had the most interaction between each other this season, uh, the least, I mean, it's Oliver and Laura. They haven't interacted that much. So I felt like it was a kind of a payoff to us fans who are, you know, shipping these two. And um, But yeah, but it does help, help Tommy's continuing path because towards becoming the Merlin that we know and um, but yeah so but Tommy you know he's it's gonna be epic to see how, what happens next week and the, you know the meeting between Roy Harper and Oliver Queen as a fanboy that I am I geeked out but then I, when I saw that they, Roy and Fia broke up I was like but but no what are you guys doing or something like that but there's I have one follow up question before we wrap this up because as it is the penultimate episode of the season who do you think is gonna die Nico and why I think Malcolm Merlin I think it's I, I don't want to see it this early but i do think it's about time for that and i think tommy's going to become the merlin character following that and i think because oliver's gonna have to escape from malcolm he might kill him then or he might have to go back and kill him before the undertaking can take place so i think it's gonna be malcolm merlin something that's been interesting is that i've been reading over some boards and so on and people actually think tommy is going to be the one who dies and that if you listen to long hunters this week there's a fear that Mike Lung Wu has about that it's possibly Tommy in that suit because spoiler alert in the trailer we see Tommy seeing the suit and I, I don't know I don't agree with it because I because I'm such a Behrman fanatic I I can see clearly that it is John Behrman's eyes and his <clears throat> eyebrows and no I'm not insane I just noticed those things and but I think because they've been building up Malcolm as this big bad that we now understand I think he is gonna die because okay there are two reasons why I think he's gonna die one Behrman is expensive to have on the show and the same you know they even said on Paley Festival that having both Manu Bennett and Barrowman just cost them some money. So and because Manu Bennett is already promoted to series regular next year, and I could actually see Barrowman die for one of those reasons. And two, Tommy needs to you know if we want Tommy to reach that point as the Merlin the Dark Archer, his father has to die in order for Oliver and him to become Nemesis. And um, and the second person I think is going to be Mora. People have been speculating that Fia is going to die, which I hope she won't because I love Fia, I love Willa Holland, and I'm going to cry and have my soapbox on this this run next week if that happens so be warned but um but overall great penalty episode uh, for its first season before the season finale and um, that is all for this week's rundown section of arrow make sure to listen to our spin-off podcast lone hunters the arrow podcast which is hosted by michael j petty and wuas kim and tune in for next week for sacrifice the season finale this coming wednesday 8 7 central on the cw okay now let's throw it to andy and woo for the thursday shows with their coverage of glee Nico and Dan for that fine, fine, fine introduction. My name is Wuas Kim, and alongside me is Mr. Andy Babak, who's going to give us the official description for the fourth season finale of Glee. Take it away, Andy. All or nothing. It's finally time for regionals, and the Glee Club is more determined than ever to advance the nationals. Brittany returns from her MIT trip with a new attitude, and Ryder finally has a lead on who is catfishing him. Okay, I'm going to let Andy talk 
uh, talk about his feelings about this episode, and then I'll put my two cents in. Yeah, to begin with, I've been, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this since I saw the finale, and something that people on the internet has been saying a lot is that this finale, there's two opinions right now. One, that this was a really small season finale, and two, or, or two, that this didn't feel like a finale at all. And I actually, I'm actually on board with that this was a really small season finale in scale and so on. Even though it had a lot of good things in it, it was pretty small compared to the season one, two, and three finales. And plus, and I totally concur with you about, I totally concur with the internet, which never happens about it being small and it not being a season, feeling, it not feeling like a season finale. Because truth be told, I watched it on Hulu this morning for the first time, and I was like, the first thing I said to myself was, that's it? Wow. <laughs> and also, I think the reason why this one felt so small is for two reasons. The executive producers knew that they had two more years. So you could essentially stretch season five out. And let's say, for like argument's sake, Nationals is like our mid-season, our winter finale for next season. For, let's just say for argument's sake. And the graduation could be the episode we come back from. I think the other reason why they did what they did this episode was season three was so big. Essentially, episode 20, 21, and 22 basically were like a three-part finale. Wouldn't you agree with that, Andy? Absolutely, I would. Yeah, because since... And even with the episode props, even with that the back half of that episode props, that felt like part of a season finale, too. So I think they did it this way just because the last season finale was so big, they wanted to go back to something simple, and they, at least they accomplished that. I, I want to talk before we forget about Patty Duke and Meredith Baxter. To Meredith Baxter, for those who are familiar with her, yes, she was Michael J. Fox's mom on the show Family Ties. And Patty Duke is a legend in the in American TV history. She was on her own show in the 1960s. She's in a great performer, a great actress, a great singer. I know Andy's not familiar with her, but I really liked them as like the old the older lesbian couple. I thought the proposal was sweet, too. Like Wu said, I'm not familiar with th these two actors. When they, it was announced that they were coming to the show, I was thinking, yeah, I'm not from that generation. I'm not seeing them before. Maybe my parents have, but I haven't. But seeing these two characters, seeing, seeing these two as an old lesbian couple, I love that. And I'm. it's been said that they are coming back as recurring characters next year, which I'm looking for because they fit with the show. I think it's important that characters like Kurt and Blaine have some mentor figures because... They haven't really had mentor figures since Kurt had, you know, Isabel, for example. So I think it, it was a really good casting choice by the uh, writers and producers of the show. And I like these characters. So I'm looking forward to see what they will do next year. And I, I agree with Wu. It was a sweet proposal. It was, I was, I was thinking of being, oh, it's, it's adorable. So, yeah. And the whole, and going to that, the whole Blaine proposal thing. By the way, I have to mention great performance by Court Overshade to say, with this line, he wants to do me, but I, I don't want to do him. I really enjoyed that. The whole thing with Blaine's proposal, we kind of covered it in the the last week's episode. Look, I understand where Blaine's coming from. I But here's the thing. He's, he's trying to convince everybody that, like, this is the right thing. But the most important person that he needs to convince and he hasn't talked to yet 
is the person that he's trying to propose to. What do you think, Andy? I will do a Mercedes one on this one. Praise! I agree. I absolutely agree with Wu because here's the thing. I think that Blaine is not thinking, thinking straight here. It's be, and also it's that as characters, they are in different places right now. So, and I'm glad that, that Blaine didn't get to propose to Kurt in this episode that they only, they, they left a cliffhanger with showing us the ring box in the end because I'm, it, you know, like Bird said yet last, last week, he's too, they're too young at this point. And I agree. And also, it's not appropriate right now because they're not even together. And like, let's go to the scene in at Breadsticks. Everybody loves Breadsticks, by the way. Remember that. Yeah. In there, you know, when when I think it was Liz that said, "You guys make a cute couple." Kurt doesn't even think for one second. He just says that you know we are a couple. Snap, just that quick. And that should have you know been a hint to Blaine that okay, maybe I shouldn't do this right now. Maybe I like we said. Maybe I should talk to him before trying to propose to him. Yes, and really, and we're going to go to another thing just in a sec. And this just came to me in an epiphany. Blaine's only proposing to Kurt because he's sorry. That's essentially all he's doing it for. Because really, he's never stopped loving Kurt. That's never been an issue. Like, the, the love between those two, that's never been in question. So essentially, he's only proposing to Kurt because he's sorry for cheating on him. That's not a good enough reason to ask somebody to marry you. It's not. And also to to remind people that he they are young. So and Yeah, I'm sorry to laugh. Say, we will see this fall. I'm sorry to laugh, but that's why he's doing it. I think so too. I think he's there's a lot of confusion here, a lot of fear because he's graduating soon and so on. So, but I, I think it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens between these two in the fall when the show comes back. And we have to hit on this for sure. The whole Brittany going to MIT. I'm gonna let Annie talk about this more because he has more pointed thoughts about this than I do. Take it away, Annie. Thank you. Well, here's the thing. I have always had a, a tendency to either question or not question some of the fi- things that, that when it comes to reality in Glee, because I'm not an expert when it comes to admissions or university applications or college applications or something like that. But I know MIT is a big school. But one thing that I think that all schools have as a demand is that you need to have a high school diploma. You can't, you know, because th- what they did in this episode was basically tell Brittany that just leave the school. Just leave the school and, you know, you, you, just, you, know, you need to come to us right now and do this. Because and that's one of the things that I felt it was a bit unrealistic. But also because I talked to Wu about this and I said, I'm not sure I'm I'm buying Britney, you know, I'm also, I'm buying it, but I'm not buying it at the same time, this whole Britney being good, good at math and so on. But you know what? I can actually see it a bit after talking to Wu because he makes a lot of good points as well, which you will hear pretty soon. But it's just that it was just the MIT aspect of like, you know, you, you need to leave right now. But also we understand because Heather Moore is pregnant. Also, congratulations to her once again, that she's not going to be a big part of the show next year. So it's, it was a kind of a good send off, but the good send off. And we really love me and Wu. What was it, Wu, that it was a good, good send-up by her? Okay, one or two things before we get to that. There is something called early admission for universities. I think it's because as long as you have the intent to graduate high school, then they can do it. And you're not, like, under the age of 18. That's how they can do it. Secondly, people in the United States, in Canada, and even in some places in Europe... And definitely in Australia too. There is a term called idiot savants, where these people don't look like they're very intelligent, but you put them right in the right setting, they actually are very intelligent. And the thing that Andy was talking about was in in the show circle, what I like to call Britney's Lifetime Achievement Award. Yes, good, good term. 
Yeah, because that's what she said. said. And probably my favorite li- favorite line is, in the gym, my name is Joe. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, just for once again, they they, they, they kind of made fun of Joe and, and Sugar for being gone so long by applauding them when they came into the room because they had not addressed where they had been for the past three, four weeks, which we they probably were not get the, They to. were locked in Sir Sylvester's basement learning how to potty train. That was that was the most out there line I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like... And Jim. Yeah, and Jim, and Jim. Well, let's um, go back to Brittany. You were saying? I have to assume that Ryan Murphy was the one that wrote that little monologue for her. Loved the, the, the send-off for her character. Because like you said, she's not contracted for season five yet. None of the actors at this point are. If they don't bring her back because of the her having a child, that was a great way to send her off. But moving on to, uh, we, let's get let's get to here and because it is a minor thing. Rachel's performance, I'm really glad. Uh, like Andy said earlier, that we don't know by the end of the episode if she got the role of Fanny Bryce. I loved the Celine Dion performance. I don't know if that was acting that Leah Michelle did when she had the tears in her eyes, but it, whether it was or wasn't really doesn't matter to me. What did you think about this performance, Andy? It's one of her best performances in this season. And, you know, like like Wu said, I think it was a good thing to not reveal whether she got a role or not, because one thing that we, you need to remember, a season finale is supposed to leave a few cliffhangers for next year. And also, you know what? Last year, in the last three episodes of the season in, of Glee, she was featured heavily. So I think it was good for once to just have, have only one scene because this was you know we only needed to see this thing we didn't see, need to see anything with Niada nothing with you know with anything else in New York we just need to see that callback because you know what that, I'm looking because we to got wait. that last episode we really got that last episode with Kate Hudson so we didn't really need it in this one exactly yeah Let's move to a fairly controversial subject. I'll let Andy talk about this one first, and then I'll put my two cents in. Because when we were talking about this off microphone, I I had a lot of views. But let's talk about the reveal of actually who Katie was. All right. Well, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. I side with both Ryder and Unique, but what I told Wu was that I felt that Ryder was a little bit too harsh on Unique, and here's the reason why I think so. Let's think about what Katie, quote-unquote, Katie did during this, this arc. She was there to listen to Ryder's problems with, you know, with Unique, with Marley, and so on. What she, did she do back? She helped him. What, it ha- what happened? Ryder fixed it, thanks to her encouragement. Okay, Ryder has told her some personal things. Has Katie gone on then and told everybody at the school or something like that? No. But, so I, that's why I feel like she didn't really hurt Ryder. But I understand that it feels kind of disrespectful when somebody that you then find is in the same club or organization you are in is actually pretending to be somebody else. And also, he felt disappointed because Katie wasn't who she was. And so I understand that as well. But I just feel like he was a bit too harsh on Yune because she was trying to help him. Maybe not in the best way, but I still feel, feel like that, okay, she didn't really destroy or ruin anything, but she could have, if she wanted to be there for Ryder, she should have just walked up to him and said, I, I want to give you some advice on some of, the, some of the problems that you're having right now. I'm willing to be here to listen to, to what you have to say. You know, I, I'm willing to listen to your personal stuff and keep, to, and keep it a secret because I want to be able to help you because Unique seems to care about Ryder a lot. And so, but, but, right, but then, like I said, Unique did a wrong thing. 
writer was right to feel like that. You know, I'm glad that that he didn't punch her. That you know that he because like Wu said to me, he did it very respectfully. She just he just walked up to her and said, "There's nothing between us. I will never talk to you again." And leaves. And then there's the whole thing of, "Oh, I'm leaving New Directions after Regionals." But that we will get to that a little bit later when we talk about the regional overall. But Wu, what what did you think? Okay, first of all, I'm more on the side of writer in this just because of the the circumstances that went on, and I I need to be honest to with the audience. This kind of situation has happened to me once or twice where people have said who they are but not really, who have lied about who they are but not really. And here's the thing, and I'll put it to you like this, and I didn't say this off microphone. Let's say I have I have the flu. I have the flu, right? And somebody helps me back to health. But when I, I tell them I'm 100% back to health, they kick me right between the legs. Th- that's what Unique did. And I'm not, I'm not one of those people that like the ends justify the means. Yeah, Unique helped Ryder. I get it. And I'm not defending Ryder in the sense of he did say thing. He did state things over text about his personal life. That's on him. Revealing those kind of personal things about yourself. That's on him. I'm not. I'm not gonna throw stones at Unique for that. That's that's his thing. That's his thing that he did. I have no problem with that. I have no issue with that. What I have issue with is the fact that. People and not just Andy. People think Ryder acted too strongly. I thought he showed a lot of restraint, to be honest with you, because he he could have kicked Unique right in the face, one and just walked away. And you know what? He would have been justified just to do that and just move on. Yes, I agree. I understand where Unique is coming from, but if you knew that, then you should have just ended it. Because quite honestly, what would it have changed? Because now it's worse. Not only does Ryder not want want anything to do with you, which I think would have happened anyway. I think that would have happened regardless. I think we're all in agreement that would have happened regardless, no matter what. If Unique had told her who he who he actually really was in real life, but now Ryder does Ryder doesn't know who to trust anymore, and that's something that we didn't talk off off microphone. Is not only is like he wants nothing to do with Unique anymore. But Ryder really doesn't know who to trust anymore. At least that's, in the Clay Club, I think. And that's even worse. That's even worse. Should we go to yeah, the Yeah, we'll talk part about then. this more maybe on like our season recap episode. But you get my point, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not saying Unique is totally in the wrong. But I'm more on Ryder's side about how he reacted. Just because he could have done a lot worse things than he did in the episode. Oh yeah, completely. Now, regionals. What did you think, Wu? Overall... Okay, not fantastic, not you know, not nowhere near the level of nationals last year. Nowhere near. The no, level. no, 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 not, not. It was good. This was good, but no, they're they not even half close to what nationals was last year. Not even regionals. Not even regionals. The first season, it was okay. It was three out of five. The performances, I really loved. Uh, Marley and Blaine singing together. I think Chris and Benoist have really good harmony together. So I hope they do more duets together. But more, other than that, I was okay with it. I really liked the performances. I thought the Hoosier daddies, some of the girls were lip syncing during their performances. But overall. I thought it was okay. Uh, it wasn't spectacular. It wasn't, you know, horrible. It was just eh. It was, uh, it was okay. I would give it... 
a 3.5 out of 5. Yeah, I would give it, like, the, like the episode in total, like, it gets a different score, but I would say 3.5 out of 5 as well. I really liked how they handled the Will and Emma thing finally coming to an end, so to speak. Just having them married, it, it really should have been in the choir room. Because that's where they fell in love. That's where the... Uh, really, that's how where all the... Where the series started. Not just their love affair, the series started. You heard the man. I agree. And, and really... And just a minor thing. Uh, just a minor thing, and then I'll let you talk about this. Uh, the whole time I was thinking in the ceremony, she should have just thought about this in the beginning anyways <laughs> emma yeah you get my point like i i get your point yeah like they re they really should have done this at, at the beginning knowing her emotional instability but go go on well, what I was going to say was, there are two things. Just one last thing about the regional part. When they won, we knew they were going to win, guys. We knew it. When they won, and they're, you know, hugging each other and so on, congratulating each other and so on, we see Unique and Ryder hugging each other. And there's there was this awkward moment, but it was this moment for me when I was, when I was thinking that, okay, the, the, the conflict between those two are not over. But I'm wondering if Ryder might reconsider what he said about leaving re and the Glee Club after regionals because they they qualified to nationals, guys. So who knows? But then about the Will and Emma thing, I t said this to Wu on off microphone that thank Lord it's that it's over now. I'm just wanted to. I don't hate them, but it's been going on for two seasons now and i'm just glad that they got married so we can two put seasons. this behind this happened us. like the entire series like, well, well, see, well season one i well yeah. season one we, we had to give some credits to because they weren't together at that point then because yeah you know, but like they've been doing this dance for like four years like to the point where i was just happy to see it end because i didn't care about it as much anymore exactly there's a lot of more important stories that we need to focus on but Overall, before we go, we have two things. Overall, about the season finale, and overall, just briefly about the season. This season finale was small, yes, but it had a lot of good things. But there was a lot of cliffhangers, and I think I read one article that, that said, "What what was the point of this episode? They didn't really resolve anything other than the the Will and Emma wedding." I'm, I I like that the, the priest also went with a shipper name, so <laughs> that was kind of funny. <laughs> but it was like, what did, what did they do in the end? Like you know, because it didn't really wrap a lot of things up it kind of gave us a lot of cliffhangers and a few resolutions with britney for example but what, what do you think i th i think what this person said on the internet pretty much sums up the point of the episode the point of the episode was to leave cliffhangers to give you interest and to talk about this episode and see what's going to happen in season five if you could give it a rating out of five what would you give it i would give it a 3.5 maybe even a slight four out of five which is the lowest I've given for any finale, but you know what? I'm not giving a rating like this because it was bad. I'm giving a rating because, like this because overall, nothing really popped out of my mind. It didn't, it didn't really wow me like the, like New York or or Nationals did season two, season three finale, or even the regionals one from the first season. Like it didn't really wow me, but again, I really didn't feel like I needed to be wowed. I I would be more mad if they tried to just wow us for the sake of wowing us. But do you agree, Andy? I agree. I will give it um, a four because there was nothing. 
it wasn't bad, guys. It was a small finale, and that is not a bad thing all the time. But it was overall, it was a small finale. So I will give it a four out of five. And you know, we will probably mean we will probably do a recap episode of this season as a whole later on, maybe this month or maybe this summer. So, but overall, it's been. I will say one thing about this season: it has been a completely new animal, a completely new season, and it's it's and it has reinvented itself in a lot of ways. But I will say my thoughts when we did a recap episode. What are like, your two cents on this season, Wu? The season really re- really reinventing themselves, like you said. When we get to season six, if we get to season six, because there's no guarantee that it's going to go see- to six seasons. When we look back on Glee as a season, I think we're going to look at this as like a very, very much like Buffy season four in terms of a very strange, very unique, no pun intended, um, <laughs> an- animal in and of itself. And I think it's going to be the, the season where, like Joss Whedon said about season four of Buffy, we all went on this journey. None of us went together, but here we all are. Exactly. And that wraps it up. Like we said last week, guys, our forms are still done. But if you want to tell us what you thought about this finale, leave a comment in the comment section when this episode is released, along with the other sections of, of Across the Airways. And if you want to talk about Glee on a forum, you can go to my boss, Craig Burns' forum on KitaTV.com slash forums and go to the Glee station there you can talk where you can talk about the finale and previous episodes and let them let them know that we sent you but overall it's been a fun season uh, until we hear in uh, the recap episode we will see you guys this fall with, when we come back with Glee season 5 and also st- make sure to stay tuned on the website and on Twitter our Twitter feed for you know because Comic Con is coming soon Glee probably going to be there so make sure to stay tuned for that about upcoming news about who's coming back who's signing on for serious regular and so on and um but until then guys have a good one bye guys thanks guys for your thoughts on glee now we're going to wrap up our discussion this week with the great episode of elementary that finally introduces the character of irene adler with the episode risk management a man claiming to be Moriarty hires Holmes to solve a murder. Watson is being pushed by Gregerson to go back to being his sober companion rather than pursue dangerous exploits with Holmes. Well, my genius was tempered this week as only half of my brilliant theory about Irene Adler turned out to be accurate in that she did indeed fake her death, but it appears she is probably not Moriarty. Oh well, you can't win them all and I'm still brilliant, if not a total genius. This week's episode of Elementary gave us only the tiniest glimpse of Natalie Dormer, but referred to her with the famous Irene Adler quote about her being the woman to eclipse her entire sex. Although you have to wonder if that includes Watson at this point, or if in Sherlock's eyes she transcends gender-based categorization. Gregson repeatedly warned Watson against staying with Sherlock, and she accused him of being more worried for her sake because she, quote, didn't have a penis. Great line by Lucy Liu. When Sherlock told her he would protect her no matter what, and then tried to avoid bringing her along to the address where Moriarty said he would find his answers, Watson reiterated her argument to Gregson that affirmed her right to live dangerously, have agency, and not be relegated to the role of damsel in distress. Confusingly, she also said her reasons for wanting Sherlock's case resolved were personal, drawing another parallel between herself and the case of the week's murderer, who had arranged for another man to die to give her beloved husband peace of mind. It was a rich stew of gender parody and possible romantic overtones, allowing fans to seize on whichever interpretation they prefer, platonic loyalty or possibly romantic love blossoming. I of course latch on to the platonic loyalty as I don't want to see this devolve into a romantic relationship. 
Because Johnny Lee Miller is Johnny Lee Miller, he whispered this summation of Irene Adler the way a chivalrous knight describes his quest for the Holy Grail. And in true British acting form, he had a lip-trembling, gasp-sighing, shaking-hand-pointing moment of realization when he saw the back of Irene's head in the last 30 seconds of the episode. I can't believe that 30 seconds of screen time counts as episode one of Dormer's three-episode arc, but I guess it does. If nothing else, this episode established Sherlock and Moriarty are greatly intrigued by each other and down for some adversarial shenanigans, something viewers have long been rooting for. And that Sherlock's side of the bargain will be more complicated as he's vowed to not let their crossfire intercept Watson. It was an interesting turn to make Moriarty a client of Sherlock's, even if his aim in getting Sherlock to solve the case was to stage a rather elaborate example of why revenge is truly awesome. So all in all, slightly interesting case of the week, but I'm excited for next week and that's the main point of an episode before a finale isn't it as i said super excited about finally seeing irene adler really excited about the two-hour season finale next week in which we're going to really dive into that relationship going to be good stuff with that it's about time to move on to the voicemail section this week the call has been forwarded for, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system is not available to page this person press five now tone please record your message when you have finished recording you may hang up or press one for more options in this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about how I met your mother. Hey, ATA listeners, it's your old buddy Wu S. Kim with his thoughts on the penultimate episode of the eighth season of How I Met Your Mother, entitled Something Old. First, the minor stuff. I really, I don't know if I was more entertained or a little bit disgusted by the whole Marshall and Lily King Kong blonde wig thing. I'm not, easy, I'm not easily grossed out by anything sexual on TV, but I have to say, that, that thing kind of grossed me out. And the whole thing with the beanbag chair and the triangle, and not wanting to, and Ted not wanting to get rid of the beanbag chair, I feel for Ted like I always do. I'm a Ted advocate, as most of our listeners know. If there's one character on How I Met Your Mother, I'm like more than anyone else, it's Ted. But, and I'm glad he realizes within a span of an episode, a beanbag chair doesn't define a friendship. It does not, you know, sum up a friendship. And a lot, and many things, if not all things in this earth, have to die and have to end. And for, and I'm glad he realized that letting the beanbag chair go means that he's one step closer to meeting the mother and one step closer to being the guy he needs to be to meet the mother. But before I get to the main part of why I wanted to leave this message this week, I really love the bonding scene between Robin's father and Barney over laser tag. I loved their full metal jacket, like pep talk scenes to both of their laser tag teams. Nice to see laser tag back again on How I Met Your Mother. I feel that Craig Thomas and Carter Bays, who also wrote this episode and who happened to be the creators of I Met Your Mother, within the, these last two episodes are going to like end a lot of the long-running gags and long-running character traits that these these characters had for the last eight seasons, for the ninth and last season, next season, 
we're going to see them step into a new direction, which I find, which I think is, which I think is fantastic, and I really think it's needed. I don't think to move on to the, let's say the main event of my recording this week on ETA. I don't think that. Ted and Robin are going to have a quick fling. I do not think that she's going to going to cheat on Barney with Ted. I do think though, and I love the and I love the callback to the end of the first season with the rain thing and Ted and Robin. I do think with this whole signs conversation in this episode, with Robin and Ted being the one that need to talk one last time about any lingering feelings between each other, I do think this will be the healthiest and the most complete way to, to truly end the relationship, if there's any, between Robin and Ted, as far as being lovers, quote-unquote. Again, and Nico and Dan have said this on several podcasts, too, and I hate to regurgitate some of this conversation, but you have to make Ted somewhat interesting, because the last few episodes, they've really been procrastinating, and really, I don't blame the writers for this, because there's only one woman for Ted left to meet, and that's the mother, after his crazy stalker thing later in the season. I do think, though, in retrospect, if the writers knew how difficult or how I don't want to say boring Ted would be, or difficult how it would be to write for Ted. I don't think they would have wrote that bit of dialogue for Bob Sackett to read. Before I go, I need to reiterate one last thing I said earlier. I love that it's Robin and Ted talking about signs in the rain, because once again, that's that's a callback to the season finale of season one, when... Ted does a rain dance, so Robin's camping trip will get canceled, and that proves that Ted and Robin are meant to be, well, at least for that season, too. I love that symbolism, and again, I don't think that Robin is going to cheat on Barney. I think Robin and Ted are going to have one last conversation about any lingering feelings they had. Anyway, guys, can't wait to talk to you guys next week about the season 8 finale. Can't wait for it. Let's take it back to Dan and Nico. Bye, guys. In regards to my thoughts on the penultimate to the first season finale episode of Arrow, entitled Darkness on the Edge of Town, I thought that, like, last week, we got an episode that got us really speculating, got excited about a showdown between the hood and the dark archer next week. First off with this episode, it was great to see Felicity, Dig, and Oliver working as a team again, get a classic Ocean's Eleven heist movie scenario that exploited all their talents, including Felicity's ability to look good sporting a big belly burger uniform because she helped the team infiltrate Merlin Global Headquarters. However, besides looking good while delivering fast food, Felicity with her dialogue that the writers seem to have more and more fun with writing every week the Luke Skywalker slash Princess Leia swing across the elevator shaft she shared with Oliver made this infiltration scene great, while adding a dose of suspense that wouldn't have been there if it was just Dig and Oliver doing the job. 
when Oliver got hung up with Malcolm Merlin. God, the elevator. Other cool moments that occurred in this episode was when Oliver pulled the fake out on his mom with Dig dressing as the vigilante while Oliver sat tied to a chair pretending to be his hostage. Speaking of fake outs, how about Malcolm Merlin revealing to Oliver that he is the Dark Archer? Oliver honestly thought he was going to take him down easily, just like any of the other businessmen on this list. And then wham! Malcolm catches the arrow, and Oliver is on the ground unconscious, and unmasked. Holy crap, what a penultimate episode cliffhanger. And I think Malcolm was just as shocked to discover Oliver was the vigilante, because Oliver was to discover Malcolm is the Dark Archer. Now, with this being an outstanding penultimate to the season finale episode, which completely blew the penultimate episodes of Smallville that left us disappointed out of the water, I fear the writers of Arrow are doing too much too soon. For instance, I always figured that seeing Oliver and Laurel sleeping together would cause Tommy to snap. But I didn't think we were going to see this until midway through next season to progress his descent towards becoming a villain in a way that there will be enough story to tell about him to fill up a TV show's typical five-year plan, which I see Errol fulfilling. Again, the purpose of Tommy going evil so soon might be to bring in the fire, yelling, and physicality that's a part of Oliver and Laurel's relationship in the comic books to this show. Because in this episode, she came across as this doe-eyed, lovesick teenage girl like Lana on Smallville. Because that's just not Black Canary to me. However, maybe her becoming the fishnet wearing vigilante will shed Laurel of the vulnerability she's displaying at this point. Another romance or storyline that's going too fast is Roy breaking up with Thea when she wants to give up on fighting the vigilante. Because with Oliver being captured by the Dark Archer next week, this is going to mean Roy will probably end up saving Oliver on his own. And I don't like this as, quote-unquote, Speedy should be Roy and Thea as a team, because Thea being kept out of the loop on Oliver's vigilante activities just doesn't sit well with me, because I really like her character better than Roy. In other words, I guess what should be done to make both the Thea and Roy supporters happy is to keep having them search for the vigilante, but leave them off of Oliver's team to tell a lot more stories with Felicity Got dig are expended. Because I think these younger characters joining the team, possibly in next week's episode, will take away from them. Guys, for my last discrepancy, it's a minor thing, but I've, I've been debating if they should have wrapped up the flashback storyline in this episode. Because with there being more to cover on that front next week, I'm worried it's going to take time away from the finale, delivering a proper showdown between Oliver and the Dark Archer unless they intercut the fight with Oliver and Shadow defeating Friars. Then again, I could be sitting here next week praising Eros Finale for how it resolved all the concerns I just mentioned. I guess in other words, with that, I will leave things saying I'm just really excited for next week's Arrow season finale. Got the Longbow Hunters, which will be covering it. Because they are both going to be great episodes. So good luck with that, guys. I'm sure you're going to deliver something. That's going to be fantastic. See ya. Thanks, Will, again for your great comments this week. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners like Michael did last week, and we'll have some comments to play in the voicemail section next week. 
Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or some feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. Yep. And with that, we're going to move into the closing for this probably long, extended episode that we want to thank you guys for sticking with us with. Next week's episode should be a little bit shorter, hopefully. And then from there, it's going to be a total drop-off as most of our shows are going to be wrapping up this week. So, Nico, tell everyone what's going on next week. It's kind of a jam-packed episode, but a little bit lighter than this one. Yeah, on next week's episode, the TV schedule starts to wind down as we've already had a few season finales. As we review the season finales of Once Upon a Time and Castle, continue our coverage of Game of Thrones. There won't be any psych as it takes a week off. The finale of Supernatural, the finale of Big Bang Theory, and season finale of Doctor Who all next week. We will also round things out with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on Simpsons, Family Guy, How I Met Your Mother, Revolution, Defiance, Arrow, and Grimm, many of which are also season finales, but there will still be much more. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out our blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. And until our next episode of the regular Across the Airwaves is released, you can check out our other spinoff podcasts. We've got ATA Retro Reviews, which covers TV shows that were canceled and went out on their own terms. We've also got Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which covers all the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans, including movies, Brian Q. Miller's Smallville Season 11, comic books, the DC's New 52, and everything they have going on with animation, including the new Cartoon Network series, Teen Titans Go! And also, you can check out, which has a big finale episode coming up this week, is Logball Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is dedicated to covering episodes of the hit TV series Arrow in greater detail. And that show is hosted by Michael and Wu. And they are really gearing up for a great finale episode, talking about next week's Arrow finale. So for more details on this week's Arrow's episode that we talked about here, which was a great episode, kind of the season finale, which is shaping up, would be great next week. Listen to Logball Hunters, the Arrow podcast. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us by visiting our newly updated and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also click the button on our page to like our Facebook. And through doing that, you will stay updated on our podcast episode releases and also be able to follow all the entertainment news that Nico reports on during our Across the Airwaves episodes. For that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the airwaves there's no the on there it's just across airwaves or you can join our circle on google plus also if you'd like you can leave us a voicemail okay what number can you call to do that nico 773-809-3363 and with that you can give us your thoughts or feedback on any of the shows we cover or our podcast in general so uh if you're interested do that also if you'd like you can check out our youtube channel which features previews and promos for all sorts of across the airwaves events as well as upcoming movies also available on our youtube channel is a playlist of the DC Nation shorts that is shown during the Saturday morning programming block on Cartoon Network. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you could contact us, you could download our podcast box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you could download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace to get that same content. But again, that's our podcast episode and ways you could contact us. So, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Lou Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustic. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. And look out for the possible rise of the machines. See ya.
Walker lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.